Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Action Radio. This is Greg Penglis coming to you from the historic district of downtown Milton on the banks of the beautiful Blackwater River. And now let's get into Action Radio. Welcome to Foggy Friday. It's Cinco de Mayo. So, so, uh, buenos dias. <laughs> All my uh, American uh, uh, folks that celebrate Cinco de Mayo without having a clue as to why you're doing it. <laughs> See, that was the fun out in San Francisco. I love being in San Francisco. We have the Mission District. Mission District is, is known as the Hispanic District, uh, which really is one of those terms that doesn't mean a whole lot. Uh, it's uh, anybody from Central or South America. Uh, who speak Spanish. And so I don't know where the Brazilians go. I guess they go there too because they speak Portuguese. Uh, people tend to forget that little tidbit. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's a fascinating holiday. And of course, San Francisco was a lot more fun uh, in the 80s and 90s. And by the 2000s, you know, they, they became woke, politically correct. The leftists took over. And of course, the leftists take all the fun out of everything. That's the biggest problem with the left. You know, they, they kill you with boredom. If they don't just outright kill you. Okay, so besides the folks that they outright kill, you know, in riots and murders and, uh, you know, all kinds of nasty things that happen. Um, if you get past that, the, the, the leftist lynchings and everything else that goes on, uh, and when you get past that, then, um, you know, then they just kill you with boredom. <laughs> you know, those are the worst part about being in communist East Berlin was boring. Oh, so disgustingly boring. Uh, but anyway, so that's, that's the left. Um, but uh, so all the good holidays are gone. <laughs> all the fun things, you know, that, uh, that we used to celebrate, like Halloween. And you want to talk about drag queens. Everybody's uh, uh, objecting to, and as they should, drag queens in the schools because that's basically pornography for kids. And we don't do that. Uh, Tennessee was brilliant. Tennessee had the best reaction. They classified uh, uh, drag queen shows uh, in the same category as strip shows. You know, and, and you, you can't attend a, a, a stripper place unless you're, I think it's 21 or over, probably because they serve alcohol. Anyway, so, so 21 and over is fine. Even 18 and over is fine. You know, most 18-year-olds are, are pretty sophisticated. You know, we have a we have a teenage reporter under eighteen, and she's brilliant. You know, so but it still doesn't matter if you're if you're not an adult. You know, you do you shouldn't be exposed to this stuff. Um, and so this is quite interesting. Anyway, uh, so that, that's the left seems to want to do that over uh, anything else. But uh, when it comes to you know holidays, like, it can be fun. Anyway, back to Halloween. So in San Francisco, we used to have these amazing. Um, celebrations, especially in the Castro. And the Castro is the gay district of San Francisco. Um, it's interesting that um, if you want to notice one difference in, 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 in gay and lesbian culture, it's like the, the lesbian folks in San Francisco didn't really have a central area, but the guys did, the gay guys did. And that was the Castro. And the Castro is fabulous. I mean, it had uh, one of the very few uh, theaters that still had a working Wurlitzer organ. Uh, same thing with the Grand Lake Theater across the way in Oakland. And I loved the Bay Area when I was there. I mean, like I said, the 80s and the 90s were fabulous. Eh, kind of got a little, it wasn't it was still okay in the 2000s but once you crossed 2010 when, well actually once you got into Obama's America uh, it, it, not just necessarily directly related to him but at that time period you know 2008 really you know after then after the big recession of course everything went downhill uh, and now it's you got two you got two types of folks in California you've got guilty white liberals that are multi-billionaires and you've got uh, poor illegal aliens <laughs> that's about it so the only folks left in California, and, and as it turns out, the guilty white billionaires are paying for the poor illegals. Um, but everybody else is gone or, or leaving because there's no reason to stay there. But back in the 80s and 90s, you know, Halloween, and, the, and you want to talk about drag queen shows? I mean, of course, this, is, this was an adult event because uh, it was night and it was late, you know, and stuff. Uh, uh, but parties, concerts, concerts in the streets, bands were there. You know, it's just like they have the, uh, um, the, the festival. What is it? I forgot what it was in the summertime in the North Beach area, the Italian area. And they, there's some Italian holiday. It, it wasn't Columbus Day. 
but they'd close off entire. They, they closed off then too, but there was some uh, holiday in the summertime. I forgot what it was. And uh, in the North Beach uh, area. And, you know, San Francisco had some really incredible parties. And we all had a good time. It really was, a, it was fascinating uh, to just be able to see these different places. Chinese New Year, unbelievable. You know, great party. You know, parades, the whole bit. Uh, uh, we actually got to shake uh, Gavin Newsom's hand. You know, my daughter did, which is kind of funny. You know, said, uh, meet the mayor. We also met uh, Jerry Brown um, by accident when he... Uh, uh, this is over in Oakland when he was mayor of Oakland. Jerry Brown was governor of California, ran for president. He ran for president on a 10% flat tax. You know, that's uh, from a Democrat, that's outstanding. Uh, and that was a great idea. Anyway, I, I'm digressing. I'm kind of all over the place this morning. But the holidays were great. Um, but to Cinco de Mayo, um, just to bring it back where we started. Uh, oh, anyway, San Francisco. Yeah. So, so uh, when, you know, some things got violent, uh, some people came in from out of town and they started assaulting San Francisco citizens during Halloween. You can't do that. Okay. Let people celebrate, their, you know, whatever they want to celebrate. You know, let the street fairs go on. But now it's become crazy and people have co-opted and, you know, even the Haight-Ashbury's lost its charm. The hippies have left and the commercial businesses have moved in and they've sort of made a business of hippiedom. Uh, and so the it, timing is really critical. You've got to be in areas when they're at their best. And by the time most people find out about it, it's like by the time the Sermon of Love came around, you know, it was already too late. <laughs> you know, 67, you know, 68, this is when the violence happened. You know, we had uh, assassinations, uh, Bobby Kennedy, uh, Martin Luther King. You know, horrible. Uh, Kennedy, you know, John Kennedy in 64. Um, but, but the point is, it was 64 or 63. I'll have to check history. But the point is that the really cool stuff in San Francisco was before the summer of love, like two or three years ahead of it. Before, it's like your favorite restaurant. By the time everybody else finds out about it, you know, they're busy and they're happy, but, you know, it's no fun anymore because the lines are out the door. You know, so that's the same thing with San Francisco holidays. Anyway, one of those holidays was Cinco de Mayo. I don't know the current state of it, but uh, it's really funny because it's not a Mexican holiday. Any more than St. Patrick's Day, you know, in Ireland is a chance to go out and drink green beer and parade in the streets and bands coming. They, they don't. They just don't celebrate it. It's really funny. Uh, I don't know. I'm wondering what Columbus Day is like in Italy. I'd be kind of curious. Um, but uh, I know it's not much in Spain, even though it's the, the Queen Isabella of Spain that I think gave Columbus all the money to go exploring. So we have a fun time with holidays. It's also said that Americans take everybody else's peasant food and make it a delicacy. <laughs> Tacos, <laughs> spaghetti, <laughs> you know, things like that. Um, you know, pizza. <laughs> you know, you, you don't see, the only reason you see pizza in Italy is for, is for the tourists. But if you ever get uh, real Italian cuisine, especially northern Italy, there's, there's, they don't even have tomatoes in it. That, that's peasant food. You know, the same thing in prejudice of potatoes. That's, like, that's for like poor Irish. You know, it's, it's peasant food. You know, it's really interesting how the different, uh, you know, the, the snob appeal of certain things and the, the other stuff that we consider, you know, you know, do you think they have French fries in France at first? No, it's here. They went over there. They're palm frites over there. But, uh, but the funny part is that we take somebody else's food, call it that nation's food. They don't even have it. You know, do you think French fries started in France? No, of course not. So Cinco de Mayo is one of those holidays, and it's really kind of fun. So all of you who had a great time on St. Patrick's Day, uh, St. Patrick, I believe, chased, chased the snakes out of Ireland, which were probably never there because it's an island. It'd be hard for the snakes to get there in the first place. Um, so that's pro- I don't think they have snakes in Hawaii for the same reason, unless they're introduced. You know, stuff comes off. Uh, oh, they do have snakes because the mongoose that were there to, to get after the snakes. And then the mongoose ate all the eggs of the, the native bird, the nini, the, uh, the, the Hawaiian goose, the, the, national, the state bird of Hawaii. You know, it was killed by the mongoose that were brought in to kill the snakes that weren't native to there in the first place. So it's, uh, you know, it's like Burmese pythons in Florida. Um, it's Friday. I'm all over the place. You know, anyway, so happy Cinco de Mayo. Let's, let's take a look at uh, uh, some of the things. This is, you know, 
I, I, once I get to rambling, you think you can't fill time, and then you start doing radio, and, and, and you realize how little time there is. It's just because you're rambling so late. All right, so let's start with um, I wish I had a good article here, and then I'll get to a couple of other ones I have. So this is from the website Far and Wide. And it's, it's, I think it's from, uh, I think it's actually written in Mexico because <laughs> it's uh, Mariana Zapata. And it says Mexico right here, why Americans celebrate Cinco de Mayo. So this is probably the English uh, translation thereof. May 5th, 2022. So this is written last year. Beautiful uh, woman on the cover with a yellow, bright yellow dress. And there's another woman with a dress. And it's, it's, it's kind of cool. Uh, anyway, so it says every year on May 5th, countless, countless Americans head out to the nearest Tex-Mex restaurant and order margaritas and chips for Cinco de Mayo. Of course, I would do that every day. In San Francisco, that's like that's a daily. We don't have to wait for Cinco de Mayo for that. It's a, it's kind of a huge Mexican community. Uh, and it says most of them think they're celebrating Mexican Independence Day, which couldn't be more wrong, given that this significant holiday is actually on September 16th. Yeah, I think I mentioned that the other day. I, I didn't know it was the 15th or the 16th. So Mexican Independence Day, our, you know, our July 4th. You know, is September 16th in Mexico. All right. So all you folks, don't don't forget uh, to celebrate Mexican Independence Day actually on Mexican Independence Day, which is September 16th. Then it says others believe the Day of the Dead, another important Mexican holiday that takes place on November 2nd. So as far as Mexico goes, and see, they're not correcting the record. This is the other thing I find interesting. You know, Mexico is perfectly happy to have us celebrate Cinco de Mayo. Uh, and knowing that it's not that big a deal in Mexico. Anyway, so the article says, so what is Cinco de Mayo? And why do Americans celebrate it? The answer is as random as it is interesting. You know, pictures, 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 the big battle. This is the meaning of Cinco de Mayo. It has nothing to do with the United States. Instead, it commemorates the 1862 Battle of Puebla. Not Pueblo, Puebla. See, that, this is, that's gender. That's actually gender. So Pueblo would be masculine and Puebla would be feminine uh, because, because Spanish, Italian, uh, and French all have gender on everything. La table. You know, so that's gender is now sex is male and female, but gender is applying male and female to words that of inanimate objects. In this case, Puebla. <laughs> anyway, so 1862, Battle of Puebla, in which that was right in the middle of our Civil War, by the way, which was 1860 to 1864. It's probably where I get it in the history books because we had a Civil War going on, you know. And so uh, anyway, so the 1862 Battle of Puebla, uh, in which which uh, overpowered Mexican troops managed to defeat the French army. What did the French do on this day? Let me see. It's not the best deal, but they can hide it. No, that's July 14th. Huh. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> I, have to look, I never thought about that. I have to look up. Does France do anything? Does France celebrate their defeat? Probably not. All right. So, so let's back up a year to understand why the French were even fighting in Mexico. In 1861, President Benito Juarez declared that Mexico would not be play, paying its debts to other nations for a brief period of time. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> you know, I mean, nations default to China, and then China takes, you know, half their country. Uh, and uh, speaking of defaulting on debts, oh, by the way, um, we don't default on debts. We just you know, raise the debt ceiling. Why do we raise the debt ceiling? Well, because bo- Congress borrowed more money uh, above the previous debt ceiling. And they said, we have to meet our obligations. No, you stupid idiots. And I've said this over and over and over again. The, the simple answer is to cut the spending above the debt ceiling. So that you don't have to borrow above it or raise it. It's very simple. They never talk about that because, again, spending is addiction uh, in Washington. All right. Back to, uh, back to Mexico here. So Benito Juarez. Uh, when was the Alamo? Was that 1836? That would have been before that. Juarez, that name sounds familiar. I know the uh, – who was the other general? Uh, the general at um, – who was the general at the Alamo? Uh, oh, 
think about, oh, I can't remember. Anyway, so I wasn't expecting to talk about this. Is why I don't have anything prepared at this point in time. Maybe uh, maybe Marco in the in the uh, in Netherlands will come on and say, who is the general? And something comes to mind. It was Sam Houston and what's his name? <laughs> yeah, well, I'll think about it. Anyway, back to the article. President Benito Juarez declared that Mexico would not be paying its debts. Well, the French, I guess, got a little you know, pissed off at that because they probably loaned a bunch of money to Mexico. So, so they send in their, their, their debt collectors. Anyway, it says the Europeans were not happy about that. So England, Spain, and France sent troops to Mexico. In other words, they sent debt collectors. <laughs> Pay up or we shoot you. Oh, that's an interesting policy. Later, the British and Spanish were gone, having reached an agreement with the Mexican government. But Emperor Napoleon III, who, not coincidentally, was the last king of France, wanted to make – I thought he was an emperor. But uh, this is a uh, – it says Emperor Napoleon III was the king. No, he was the emperor. But why quibble about this? This is wanted to make his country relevant again. <laughs> They're still trying, by the way. Uh, he, I, no, I love France. Don't get me wrong. France is a great country. Uh, most Americans don't understand France. And it's really too bad. It's a beautiful country. Uh, the French love Americans, especially in uh, uh, the northern um, portion, Normandy, you know, where the D-Day landing was. They still love Americans. At least they did in the 80s when I was there. Um, I don't know about the newer generations. It, it, once, once you get too many generations away from when the Nazis were, you know, completely oppressing uh, the French, um, you know, they may forget that uh, the British, French, and uh, Canadians and Americans who landed on D-Day, you know, literally liberated their towns. And so it'd be interesting to see what's going on there now. All right, back to the article. So, so, uh, so he wanted to be relevant again. <laughs> he had his eyes, this is the article, he had his eyes set on conquering parts of the Americas, especially since France had lost much of its territories in the Seven Years' War, also known as the French and Indian War, and uh, after the Louisiana Purchase. The French and Indian War is probably the weakest area I have in American history. I have to look more into that uh, because I'm wondering why the French and the Indians teamed up. Uh, against uh, the British, the colonists, or whoever. So I'm curious. Anyway, somebody who's a really good expert on that particular war, you can call me some 215-383-3832. Anyway, by May 5th, 1962, Mexico had enjoyed almost 51 years of independence, and it was not about to let another European country try to invade it, uh, especially not after spending more than a decade fighting uh, to kick the Spanish out. I think that's 1862. (laughs) I think they goofed on this. They said, by May 5th, 1962? Yeah. Uh, no. So if this, let's hang on. Yeah. 1861, uh, battle. Okay. All right. Yeah. So we'll find out what Mexican independence is. I think they goofed on that one. 1962. It was a little bit recent, you know, to be, you know, fighting with muskets on a battlefield. All right. Anyway, so this is that with this spirit blazing their souls, the poorly equipped 2000 man army led by general Ignacio Zaragoza found itself confronting 6,000 French soldiers, so 2,000 versus 6,000, right? Soldiers in the city of Puebla de Los Angeles, which means the city of angels. So I guess the Puebla de Los Angeles would be the, uh, the high up, you know, mountain, flat top, you know, city of angels. <laughs> okay. The soldiers were primarily Mesdits Mestizos, M-E-S-T-I-C-S. This is why I need Josie to call it and help me out with my Spanish. Mestizos of mixed race. Oh, wow. Okay. In, in other words, multicultural. <laughs> or Zapotec, an indigenous uh, group in the area. In other words, native Mexicans. Uh, though outgunned and outnumbered, the Mexican army defeated French forces after a single day. We're still waiting for uh, the, the Lin-Manuel Miranda musical about this. I'm not sure who Lin-Manuel Miranda is, but apparently they make musicals about battles. Uh, it says, we're sure you're impressed. Who wouldn't be? But now that you know the history of Cinco de Mayo, let us tell you how it became important to the United States. 
And then, of course, we have some nice pictures. We've got a parade. We've got uh, people dressed up to Mexican and uh, with big sombreros. You know, we're very culturally uh, appropriate here or culturally appropriating, depending on how you, how you pronounce it. Then the article says, we lo- we'd love to tell that French ran off with their tail between their legs after the Battle of Puebla de Los Angeles, but we don't like to lie. In reality, France didn't withdraw from Mexico until 1867. That'd be three years after our Civil War. Still, everyone loves an underdog win, and Mexicans held on uh, to the victory in Puebla as a symbol of their strength against European colonialism. Four days after the battle, the day became a national holiday. By May 27th, news of it had reached Mexican miners living in California, and they did not hesitate to celebrate either. (laughs) Nobody likes to miss a good party, right? (laughs) It says, in the upcoming decades, Mexican-Americans began celebrating the day to show pride in Mexican culture, especially in a country where they often faced racism and discrimination. Well, see, discrimination I understand, but racism? Mexico is not a race, okay? Um, Neither is is Hispanic. (laughs) It's a made-up term. Okay, so we gotta get off. Let's, let's let's get off this racist bandwagon. Okay, uh, that's something that really has to change. In fact, one of the things that uh, I discovered, and when I did the the show way back at WBI, writing the the mandatory question of citizenship um, on the census, one of the callers said, well, "We need to get rid of race uh, classifications throughout government, and I say it throughout business too. Uh, you know, all the HR forms, everything like that. You know, scholarships, colleges. We need to completely remove." any racial classification within our country, or we're never going to get past this. And the left is always going to use it. So, uh, you know, all these folks that are complaining, you know, everybody complains racism. I was thinking about this this morning. This is probably going to be a little controversial, but it's interesting that uh, everybody seems to be racing, you know, racing into countries, particularly the United States, that was made prosperous, you know, by white people. <laughs> you know, so you want to talk about racism? You know, well, you have to let immigrants in of color because, you know, diversity is good. Well, really? Well, uh, I mean, who made the country prosperous and free? You know, basically British white men. I mean, let's be blunt about this, right? And so look at the European nations. They've got the Tunisians are racing into uh, continental Europe by the boatload, literally boatload. You know, Tunisia, why can't you just get uh, prosperous? You know, oh, they're corrupt, Greg. I don't care. That's not my problem. You know, my problem is that we have 5 million people here. And one of the things I'm going to look into for the show on Monday is Donald Trump um, was recently quoted and I'm going to kind of snip it because, you know, news does news bites. I don't actually tell you the whole story. That's my job. <laughs> you know, anyway, so um, he's talking about getting rid of all the illegals that Brandon has brought in. And I'm curious how. I know how I do it with civil asset forfeiture. Just take all their stuff. Um, maybe give a portion back to when they go home. Uh, put it into like the, the National Bank of Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala, you know, uh, and different countries. But, um, but I don't know exactly what, but I want to know what Trump's going to do. So, I, you know, like I say, is it going to be as effective as, as what I want to do? <laughs> I don't know. We're going to find out once I find out what he's going to do. But uh, that's the plan. The plan is to send all these folks back. See, now, I would, have, uh, I would have engaged in, you know, a psychological operation where if I were the head of the Republican Party, I would have had, you know, people on the border constantly handing out to all the million, the five million that walked in a little card saying, don't get comfortable, you're not staying. I mean, that's what I do. And just to, just to sow, you know, seeds of doubt. Uh, in their minds. But apparently they're coming in thinking that they can have a better life. And the problem is these people aren't coming in for a better life. They're coming in for us to pay for them to have a better life. And that's, that's, that's fraud. Okay. And that's a, it's fraud of the, the Brandon insurrection to do that. It's fraud of the Democrats. It's fraud of the whole uh, uh, administration. It's fraud of the states that aren't uh, using assets, asset forfeiture already. I mean, what the hell is your problem? We've been talking about this two years now. Civil asset forfeiture. You know, if you can take uh, property and assets from uh, drug dealers and gangs and, and people engaged in criminal activities, you can take it from illegal aliens who are engaged in criminal activities simply by being here. Okay? 
Every illegal alien wakes up every day and makes a conscious decision to stay here and commit a crime. So every day an illegal alien here is another offense. Think about that when you think about the DACA people that have been here since 18 and are now in their 30s and 40s. So they've been here all this time, the benefits of being here illegally uh, and not going home and not going to the immigration folks and saying, look, my parents brought me here. You know, I'm sorry. I want to make amends. I want to see if I can get permanent status. And uh, they don't do that. They just stay. They just want to, they want the handout. Okay. So if you want to come to America for a better life, you better be, better be prepared to create one for, you know, for yourself and for the rest of us. That's what immigration is all about. That's why my family came here. Create a business. All right. Back to this here. But uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, and, uh, um, and talk about racism. <laughs> Let's talk about racism. Why is it that people of different races want to go to, you know, countries that were started by basically white folks? Uh, and, uh, you know, have them pay for them. <laughs> That's racism. You know, it's like white people owe the rest of the world, owe people of color, you know, an entire fortune and, uh, and, and a livelihood. That's not true. So people are starting to speak up, and uh, it might also start here. And so let's see what happens. But uh, immigration is for one purpose only, to benefit the United States. Immigration for any country uh, is merit-based and is done so that the country will improve. You don't take people in who are going to make your situation worse. We do. I think Canada does and some other places do, but it's insane. It's irrational. Oh, something interesting, too, that um, I was listening to. Uh, I have to research this story as well. Um, I, just, I caught the tail end of it about 20 minutes before showtime that the Irish uh, prime minister, the, 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 the article was, the, it was on One American News, and they're talking about um, governments are passing all these censorship laws, you know, making censorship legal, which we can't do because we have a First Amendment, right? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so our government doesn't pass censorship laws. What they do is they have the FBI uh, and the other folks in the government, the intelligence agencies, you know, work directly with social media uh, to create censorship. So they're not actually doing it. They think they're weasel wording their way around. But anytime a private company acts as a government or as a law enforcer or anything like that, they're looked at as government and they can't do that either. And so the amendment applies to any corporation acting as a government. And so if Facebook, Instagram, you know, Twitter, and oh, by the way, I'm censored on Twitter now. I know. Because, uh, you know, what? It, it took a while for them to catch me. It took about a month. <laughs> but uh, on Twitter, you know, I have my, uh, I put my, my Substack articles, gregpenglis.substack.com. And I put them all on Twitter um, ever since I first started. And up until about three weeks ago, uh, half my views were because of uh, the tweets I was putting on. Well, all of a sudden those tweets disappeared. Well, that's shadow banning, <laughs> you know. So once again, I'm censored. So if you want to, uh, you know, catch what's going on. Uh, you have to go to gregpenglis.substack.com. Now, I still get views. I get views from the app. I get views from the, the email. I get views from the, the, the subscribers. Oh, by the way, $10 a month would be really great uh, if you want to help out uh, Action Radio. $10 a month, that's all we ask. It's like, was that a can a week, those almond people? You know, that's probably about, <laughs> that's actually more than $10 a month. So, so the almond company, uh, Diamond or, or Walnuts or whatever it is in, uh, in California, a can a week, that's all we ask. $10 a month, I ask, you know. And so that would greatly help us here because if enough people do $10 a month, you know, I'll have a marketing budget that, that, you know, I can actually do stuff. I can combat the censorship. So it takes money to combat the censorship, but until I can get enough people subscribing uh, who have to hear about us, you know, getting past the censorship. So the censorship blocks not only us, but our ability to combat the censorship against us. So it's up to you to help out. Please do. All right. So anyway, um, I have no idea where I was. (laughs) The article here. So it says, in the upcoming decades, Mexican-Americans began celebrating this. Oh, it was talking about, yeah, racism and discrimination. Okay, so stop screaming racism and discrimination, all right? I was discriminated against, too. I know, because as a, as a white male uh, in this country, 
when affirmative action came in. I've told this story before. I went for my very first job in government, you know, with the Massachusetts Port Authority, uh, Hanscom Field, Bedford, Massachusetts. And I was 16 years old. I've been in the country four years. And they told me, the, the, the airport boss told me I couldn't, they couldn't hire me because I was white. He actually said that. I'm sorry, I have to hire a black kid. So there's this new program called Affirmative Action. I can't hire you. Couldn't even look at my application. I said, this is a weird country. I said, because I'm, I said, well, you know, in later years I learned, wait a minute, I'm an immigrant. Are we, are we supposed to have, uh, you know, so, is there an immigrant group to help me? No, you're a white male, Greg, and you don't sound like you're from somewhere else. Whereas if I was from, you know, Cambodia, <laughs> I would have gotten the job, right? But I wasn't. I was from Canada. You know, and I didn't speak. I spoke with an Australian. I still had an Australian accent, I think, at 16. Uh, it was fading, not by, not by uh, conscious choice. It was just, I mean, uh, you know, you adapt to where you are. I had a Canadian accent when I got to Australia. Develop, switch that to an Australian accent. I, I, don't, I don't think I have an accent now. I'm so, like, homogenized. I can probably do so many different accents. Like, if I want to speak Russian, we can do that. Like, you want to be Russian, I tell Russian. Okay, fine. So if I talk to Putin, you know, like Putin calls me and says, hey, great, let me tell you what's going on in, in the Moskva. You know, these, these crazy Ukrainians, they send drone against my Gremlin. Okay, we can do that. So I can do that. It's fun. It's easy because you get an ear for accents after a while. Anyway, um, point being, though, that, uh, again, um, it's going to be interesting to see how we kick out all the illegal folks. But uh, racism, you want to talk about the new, ra- the new racism is, quote, people of color coming to a country that was created, you know, by predominantly uh, folks to create a free and prosperous society and then expecting us to pay for you. That's racism. Wow, that was fun. <laughs> I'm glad I got that out. All right. Um, so let's move on here. It says, as the Mexican population, and by the way, I love going to Mexico. I've taken my daughter there. We've had a fabulous time. Wonderful folks. Uh, but those are the folks that were actually happy being in Mexico that we dealt with uh, and talked to and uh, took tours with. And they were great. So, you know, not everybody wants to leave their own country. Uh, in fact, I'd, uh, yeah, I wonder if we can explore that sometime about people going to another country. And then uh, when you have to go back, so why did you leave? There's a, there's a drain, labor drain, capital drain. There's all kinds of things when people leave. There's a capital drain here because people are taking money out of the country. Uh, that came up, too. I'll talk about that bill another time. Back to the article. As the Mexican population in the U.S. grew, uh, so did this sentiment. Around the 1980s, businesses realized they could make money. Let me say that again. Businesses realized they could make money from the day and co-opted it to sell chips, beer, and tacky hats. (laughs) This is definitely an article written in Mexico. This is really funny. So today, the state of Puebla and its uh, eponymous capital. I don't even know what that word is. E-P-O-N-Y-M-O-U-S. What does that mean? I'm learning English words from a Mexican. This is fascinating. Eponymous? Hang on. Does anybody else know? E-P-O-N-Y-M-O-U-S. Eponymous. Of a person giving their name to something. Oh, isn't that anthropomorphism? Actually, that's giving personality to uh, inanimate objects. Adjective. Uh, of a person giving their name to something. Of a thing named after a particular person. Oh, okay. Eponymous. All right. I it sounds like hippopotamus, but <laughs> that's not right. So Puebla and its capital, eponymous capital city, uh, still commemorate the historic battle. Parades and events are common, and the city was renamed Puebla de Zaragoza after the brave uh, general who led the troops in the battle. Throughout the year, you can visit the interactive museum of the Battle of May 5th. You can also enjoy a unique Cinco de Mayo celebration if you're near Mexico City on May 5th. A reenactment of the battle has taken place at Peñón de los Banos, near the airport since the 1930s. Is that House of the Bathrooms? Oh, that's Banos. I'm sorry. Maybe Banos. Josie, I need help. I need a little translation here. It's either Banos or Banos. One of them is bathroom, and the other means something entirely different. All right. The only difference is the tilde, the accent above the N. 
So once again, my, my inadequate knowledge of Spanish is causing me all kinds of embarrassment here. Then it says, but bar uh, from this fun historic reenactment, most regions in Mexico don't celebrate the battle at all. If they do, it's usually with small, very local events, even in Puebla. Cinco de Mayo, Cinco de, Cinco de Mayo isn't significant enough to be a veritable holiday. Uh, as nothing closes, no one gets the day off. You know, work. I said the government people do. <laughs> government people always get the day. government and bankers. You heard of bankers' holiday? It, it's not. Uh, you know, that's because bankers always take government holidays off. Then it says most likely uh, Mexicans Mexicans outside of Puebla don't really need to remember the event as impressive as it is. There are other celebrations that fit a national identity more, and the battle was not a finding enough moment in the history of the country as a whole. What's the battle? You know, we uh, how about the battle of New Orleans? How many people celebrate that here? That was an important battle, okay, uh, part of the War of 1812. How many people know about the War of 1812 that it was here, <laughs> as well as other places? You know, the, the 1812 overture, you know, that uh, Tchaikovsky wrote that I play all this. I play at the end of the show on Friday. Um, you know, that was, the War of 18, that was the War of 1812, which partially was fought here. I think it was Napoleon and Russia, because Napoleon's really, because he was emperor for a while, right? So Napoleon, you know, so that's fought the Russians. Uh, and, of course, New Orleans was French at that time. Uh, and we wanted it, so which leads to the French and Indian Wars, and they're all tied together somehow. I have no idea. Anyway, Derek's going to be here in a minute, so I don't have to worry about it. And I've got two other articles, Cinco de Mayo, but I think I've covered it appropriately for today. Ah, what am I going to do now? Like I said, I'll just wait for him to call and check. Uh, I'll play some here while I'm waiting. A little announcement of my book. By the way, buy my book. Greg Penglis here for my book, The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction. Everyone at some point in their life wants to learn how to fly. Few try. Even fewer go on to get a license. I believe a major reason for that is how we teach people how to fly. My book is designed to help you navigate the flight training system, but it's so much more than that. It really describes an entirely new way to teach flying. So if you've never tried a lesson or got discouraged in your training and quit for any reason, this book can help you. Don't be a rope pilot who just follows procedures. Be a thinking pilot who makes great decisions, who understands all the reasons why we do what we do. You can incorporate these principles into your own flight training at any time. The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction is featured on the Action Radio with Greg Pankless Facebook page and is available from Amazon.com. Well, that sounds good. Even better. Okay, how about your car? If you want the best service for your vehicle, please talk to James at Florida Stores Automotive, conveniently located at 6715 Caroline Street in the historic district of Milton, Florida, right between the Milton Bakery and the Blackwater Trail. Whether you need an oil change or an entire engine replaced, this is the place. The phone number is 850-623-6651. That's 850-623-6651. Call, ask questions, and get the information you need. Florida Stores Automotive is a full-service automotive shop for both domestic and imports, modern and classic. It is a family-owned business here in our Milton community. Open weekdays from 7.30 to 5 p.m., Florida Stores Automotive is a convenient place to keep your car maintained and on the road. Ask them about Firestone Tires and the rotation and maintenance plan. Florida Stores Automotive. I go there. You should, too.
Mission Radio. Dangerously cool. All right, let's bring Derek on. I'm going to talk money here. And uh, I imagine we're going to get to, I don't know, bank failures maybe? <laughs> what else is in the news? Good morning, Derek. What's going on? Hey, morning. How are you doing? I'm actually uh, on a roll here. We've been talking about Cinco de Mayo and how it is a purely American and not Mexican holiday, just as uh, uh, St. Patrick's Day and some of the other things we celebrate. But we're Americans. Why miss out on a good time, right? <laughs> so I was just kind of yeah, going over yeah. that in the first half hour. Yeah. Have you, have you been anywhere, uh, any of the Latino or Hispanic districts in the country um, for, for Cinco de Mayo? And, and just because uh, San Francisco is a huge one because there's money. In no, you know, no. Oh. I mean, I've been I've been in I've been in El Paso. Um, uh-huh. You know, I mean, it's just kind of, you know, restaurants celebrate. I mean, they might have some type of thing downtown, but it wasn't real big, actually. Hmm. Well, that's because Mexico doesn't celebrate it. <laughs> we do. Mexican Independence Day is September 16th. So we're kind of yeah. off by a little bit. But again, why miss a good yeah. time? So uh, this is basically a Mexican-American, you know, folks that came here from Mexico. Uh, you know, I let's mean, keep the culture. It's, 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 it's Bogo Margaritas, man. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Who doesn't, who, doesn't, who doesn't want to go get it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you can get you know, green margaritas on Cinco de Mayo. You get green beer on, on St. Patrick's Day. we got a theme going on here. We're going green. <laughs> hey, Derek, we're going green. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Well, before we get to bank failures, another hysterical thing is in the news: the uh, the accelerator and the brake theory. You know, of uh, congressional, they're going to raise the debt limit and raise the interest rates at the same time, which is monumentally stupid. But anyway, tell, let's get to the report, uh, please, if we can, and then uh, let's see what the numbers say, and then we'll we'll dig into some of the the fun issues. All right. Yeah, I'm still still pulling it up. My tablet's uh, okay. a little low, just slow yeah. loading this. Well, it's on holiday. Did you give us some green uh, electricity or something? You don't have enough of it or what? <laughs> Actually, I haven't given it any. It's down to 50%. I need to charge it after this. Oh, the laptops. See, I plug everything in. I even have uh, an Ethernet for my Wi-Fi. No, it's a, it's, uh, yeah. it's a tablet. It's a, no, okay. it's a you know, iPad. iPad. Oh. All right. Okay. I got it. Uh, I got it here. And since you wanted Yay. to talk about banks, um, it's, it's in the title. So there you go. <laughs> huh. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, all right. Well, I'll go ahead with the report. Good morning, everybody. This is Derek with the Action Radio Financial Report. Markets close lower as concerns around regional banks persist. Markets close lower on Thursday as concerns around West Coast regional banks, including PacWest, Western Alliance, continue to spark market volatility. PacWest shares were down over 30% on the day and were down over 70% this year thus far. Treasury bond yields moved lower as investors sought safe haven assets. And as markets, once again, have started to price in rate cuts by the Federal Reserve as early as September. The two-year Treasury yield, which is often considered the proxy for the Fed funds rate over time, was down over 0.17% to 3.77%, well below its recent highs of about 5%. Meanwhile, WTI crude prices fell below $70, close to the lows for the year, as concerns around global demand persist. Crude oil prices are now down nearly 15% this year. Um, There's actually a snippet um, here (laughs) on banks. Let me see here. PacWest Bank looking for strategic alternatives. PacWest Bank Corp continued to come under pressure on Thursday with its stock down over 70%. The uh, California-based bank announced on Wednesday night that it is considered strategic options, including potential sale, will seek to minimize shareholder value um, or maximize shareholder value. Excuse me. Uh, This comes as as even 
as PacWest highlighted that it is not experienced out of the ordinary deposits or outflows, and its cash and liquidity positions exceed its underserved deposits. PacWest is among several regional banks under pressure this week, including Western Alliance, Zions Corps, and recently the Tennessee-based First Horizons Bank. Uh, and I did see, just to kind of chime in, uh, First Horizon was in talks with TD Ameritrade, and those talks have now ceased, and their stock went down something like 30% yesterday because of that. Um, not a bank, though. TD Ameritrade's a, a, a stock investing company, okay, right? Okay, so, so, so here you, you – that line you is blurred that? for investing companies. Okay. So and investment companies, because of the nature of their business, are allowed to do bank-style bank products, right? Um, you know, so they can offer CDs, they can um, they can do money market accounts, they can do banking style products. So it gives them the power to do banking, right? So um, I, I can't I can't say what I really want to say, but in in my firm or you know there is some talks of becoming its own bank, you know. So um, you know, it's, yeah, don't go there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was well, gonna say something completely different, I, but yeah. I, I, yeah. I can't. I can't. No, well, it's not. It's not. It's just it's not anything bad. I just can't. You know. I mean, I'm not really supposed to talk about it because it hasn't come to fruition yet. But well, you're um, not an official spokesperson you know, either, too. So you don't want to, you know, cross right. that bridge. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's that's as far as I'm going to go. But you know, I mean, TD is, um, um, you know, they were in talks to do it because they have the power to do their own their own type stuff. So, um, let's see here. In addition, uh, investor confidence in several of these banks has diminished since the demise of the Silicon Valley Bank (SVB), which is similar to the which had a similar client base next to the West Coast client base uh, banks, and First Republic Bank. In our first, in our view, the key implications of the banking turmoil, which will be tightening lending standards, make it more difficult for both consumers and corporations to secure loans. This may weigh on economic economic activity, but it, it could marginally increase the outlook on inflationary pressures. Um, all right. So uh, U.S. equities closed down lower with the Dow Jones down 287 points or 0.86% to 33,128. And the NASDAQ closed down uh, 59 points or 0.49 to 11,966. The S&P 500 closed down. 29 points or 0.72 to 4061, uh, and the again the bond market 10-year Treasury yields were trading at 3.36, lower by 0.3 or 0.03. In the commodity markets, price of crude oil was down 0.13 to uh, uh, 68.47, and the spot price of gold was up $20 or 0.99 to 20.57.10. Uh, this is Derek with the Action Radio. Financial report, and you can get me at eight five zero nine nine five zero zero eight two. Wow, uh, this is, I think I've taken more notes from from this report than probably any uh, uh, than most others. But there's a lot going on here. Oil's only sixty eight dollars a barrel. That's wild. Yeah, well, going down. Well, the happy place, the happy place is like eighty bucks a barrel, right? Is that what you said? Yeah, that's what I said. It's like when it goes as long as it's under that is what I said. If it goes okay. if it goes over, then you start talking about prices that put pressure on our economy and put pressure on people. Mm-hmm. So so eighty dollars a barrel translates to what about three fifty a gallon nationally? Yeah, eighty excuse me, I'm sorry, eighty dollars a barrel. Okay. Um yeah, it translates to, you know, probably between a national average between probably about 340 and about 375, and that doesn't include California because California's got their own 
crap. Well, they have a special formula. Yeah, this is what, living in California was incredibly frustrating because, and we've talked about this before, there's only three refineries for California gasoline. Yeah. One of them is usually down for maintenance. And if another one goes out, if they have any kind of an incident or discrepancy or inspection or something happens, uh, you've got one refinery to make gasoline for all of uh, California. They cannot buy gasoline by law from out of state. It's a closed market. So the price of gasoline in yeah. California is almost like a separate category. Just because of their stupidity. You okay? Right. Yeah, we're getting a little blip on the phone there. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can, can you hear now, me? yeah. Yep. Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah. No, yeah. Okay. I mean it's uh you know, it's it's I think it's, you know, disgusting that they have their own blend of gas. <laughs> so Well, they almost California almost thinks of itself as as a separate, you know, Marxist nation, you know, within the United States. That's what it looks like. And because everything they're doing uh, you know, especially with the electric cars. I did a whole show on electric cars yesterday. So anything you, you want to know, in fact, go to our, our economics uh, page and the environmental page, because a lot of these things cross over both economic and environmental. And, you know, electric cars, there's no benefit to them. Uh, the only reason people get them for the most part is the huge subsidies. And it looks like the transfer of wealth, you know, that uh, they're so heavily subsidized, but because it's so expensive, you've got the middle class subsidizing, you know, rich folks that could you know, afford yeah. them without the subsidy. You know, so, right. uh, yeah. Huh. But but with the price of gasoline down, now 68 is going to translate to about $3 a gallon, I'm guessing, somewhere in there. Um, your... You know, it should. Um, yeah. You know, so, so we should kind of see the prices start trickling down at the pump. I think they're mm-hmm. hovering right at around, what, what is it, about 320 $315? Yeah, I've seen, I've seen 315 325 somewhere in there, yeah. But what's interesting, well, yeah. you can almost break down the, the price of gasoline uh, by, by, by happy place. You know, 250 and under, Americans are like hitting the road. <laughs> Shit, we're going great. We're going to Sturgis, man, with the Harley. You know, they're gone. Right, right. Uh, and so, right. so under 250 is like incredibly prosperous. I remember when it was 218 uh, a gallon here, and some places were under, under $2. Uh, you know, no, a dollar eighty-five. I think is the lowest I ever saw around here, and so that was that was just like golden. You know, people when the price of gasoline is so low, you don't have to worry about it. But I think if it gets too low, mm-hmm. then we don't produce it here because it's it's cheaper because there's not enough money in it to to produce it here, even with fracking. And so we end up uh, um, buying it, I guess, overseas, and then we become dependent on them. We have got to crank our industry back up. So I don't mind paying up to two dollars a gallon. No problem at all. That makes sense. You got to pay something yeah. for it. However, yeah. you, know, you know, you you get about four dollars a gallon, and you're heading for revolution. You know, and about oh. six dollars a gallon, people will be in the street. <laughs> you know, so there is a, you know, and then you get inflation. So, so I can, you know, and the market goes up and down, and things change. I understand that, but uh, this is purely due to the recession. I'm guessing if the price is that low worldwide. So yeah, uh, typically okay. when you start going towards recession, consumption uh, goes down. Um, you know, I mean, and and we've kind of seen that one time this year when we were kind of toppling that direction. It looks like we might be going that direction again. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I, and again, I I stress, you know, I mean, recession is a is a is a part of every economic cycle. Um, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, people shouldn't panic when when they hear the word recession. You know, I mean, um, they're not all created equal, you know what I mean? So it's not going to be a repeat of 08 and 09. Um, you know, I mean, each recession has its own issues, and, and the market reacts its own way based on what's going on. Um, I would say that um, the economy has remained resilient. There's not any supply and demand issues, really, for the most part. I'm not going to say that there's not onesies and twosies here and there, but for mm-hmm. the most part, the supply and demand issues have been have been resolved. Price of eggs is on its way back down. Um, you know, price of goods is on its way back down. You know, so um, if if we are in recession or, or have been in recession or they announce recession, 
Um, you know, my take on it is is that, uh, you know, it, it, I'm sure there will be some immediate negative responses out of the market because that's what normally happens. Um, mm-hmm. And that I, I believe, um, you know, I mean, the, the recovery would begin. And, when, and if it happens, you know, in the next few months, I would say that, uh, you know, the end of the year looks pretty good. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I don't I don't see any, any problem with the recession because, you know, you can get an economy, you know, racing too fast. And it's like a pendulum. Or it's like a, you know, it's like a wave. It goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down, you know, and that's, that's just normal. That's just the way things go. Nothing is ever static, least of all in the economy. So I wouldn't worry about that. Right. And we talk about inflation here, but what I, what I am bothered by is government created inflation, government created recessions, government created things that have, there was no need for the economic problems we're having now. When the country was so prosperous as it was under Trump, all they had to do was nothing. And we'd still be prosperous. You know, if, if Brandon did nothing, but just maintain the policies already in place. So it gets to my, and I don't know if anybody else uses this analogy, the accelerator and the brake, right? You know, if you're in your car and you stand on the accelerator and the brake, you know, you're probably going to get squealing tires and nothing's going to happen. You're not going anywhere and your tires are going to burst and your engine's going to burn out. So you're really not doing yourself any favors by standing on both of those at the same time. And yet, We just had this bill passed in Congress. Everybody's celebrating, you know, Kevin McDeep State, as I call him. Kevin McDeep State. It's hard to say, but it's really clever. Anyway, um, and they're like, oh, look, we, we cut spending and raised the debt ceiling. Well, here's what's going to happen. I guarantee you, to get this through the Senate, the Democrat Senate, they're going to have to drop the spending cuts. And the only thing that will come out of Congress that uh, Brandon will sign um, is, is an is a increase in the ceiling and no limit on spending. Guarantee you, because that's what they do every time. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I've never heard the analogy, the, uh, you know, the, the accelerator and the brake. I mean, um, you know, you have to keep in mind next year is going to be a, uh, a campaign year. You oh. know what I mean? So I'm affectionately calling it the year of hollow promises, um, <laughs> you know, but uh, <laughs> I mean, it well, doesn't matter what it is. I mean, hollow promises from everybody. But, you know, uh, what you're going to see is, 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 you know, the current administration that, that um, you know, is, was tough stance on certain things is going to mm-hmm. probably loosen up because they're, they're going to absolutely have to because they're going to have to open up voter base. All these people that are scorned, um, you know, you've got people that are very prominent liberals, um, you know, telling everybody to vote Republican. You know what I mean? Like uh, uh, Bill Mayer's doing it. Um, really? Uh, I haven't heard Joe that. Joe doing it. Yeah, yeah, they're they're basically saying, listen, there is no Democratic candidate that they believe that 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 has, you know, the potential to be a good uh, presidential candidate, you know. And I mean, like they've got these ones that are talking, and you know, I mean, I'm not trying to trash the Democratic Party, like, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I'm just regurgitating what what um, you know what these guys have said. And I mean, mm-hmm. it's easily researchable, you know, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, and I'm not playing politics or, you know, side politics, you know, the bottom line is, is two prominent liberal um, TV personalities are basically saying, hey, the candidates are, are terrible. Joe Biden is terrible, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they both, uh, you know, as voting for Joe Biden, um, you know, basically say that was a, one of the most poor decisions they've ever made. Yeah, but why, um, you know, I don't so, understand why people didn't see that because he's always been bad. He even at his best, he yeah. was terrible. <laughs> you know, even when he had all of his faculties, his decisions were horrible. There wasn't a war that he didn't like. There wasn't a spending program he didn't like. You know, he said incredibly racist things in his past. I mean, real racist things. You know, yeah. like, like a good, like, oh, yeah. like yeah, a lot yeah, yeah. Of, you know, Democrats yeah. do. Uh, I still call them the party of segregation because they're still breaking everybody up by race. Um, but it's just it, how, how people don't see this, and I guess they're counting on the short-term memory of Americans. 
You know, it's like, hey, look at us. We did this. We fixed the immigration. We fixed the border. We've lowered the price of gasoline. No, you didn't, you idiots. You, you know, uh, well, here's, let's get back to the seller in the break. I guess that's just my analogy, but it seems to make the most sense. So it's like the pizza pie analogy of, of uh, inflation. You know, if you cut your slices in smaller slices, you get more slices, but you don't, you don't get more pie. It takes more slices to equal the previous slices. In other words, it takes more dollars to equal the previous dollar. I think we're down, what, 75 cents, you know, to the dollar just from right. Brandon? In the last, which is right. huge. Yeah. Anyway, so we're at three cents on the, uh, it used to be four cents, you know, value for the 1913 dollar when the Fed came in. Now we're like down to three cents yeah. uh, of, of value from the 1913 dollar. So, so uh, a 1913, three cents of 1913 could pay for what a dollar pays today. That's insane. It's <laughs> like a 90% or 97% difference. All right. So if we think of um, the accelerator is the congressional spending. You know, and who was it was just on? Is it Rand Paul or, or somebody was just on recently um, talking about the trillions that have been spent? Uh, Iraq was like eight trillion. Afghanistan was maybe six trillion. You know, what's that? There's like 14 trillion right there. Uh, different wars, different places, different things. Trillions of dollars on these incredibly uh, uh, dangerous, wasteful programs that, you know, I'm not sure, you know, what. Anyway, I'm not getting into the politics of it, but it's a lot of money. And so if that money were here, in the productive, you know, private economy, the, the effect would be totally different. Uh, COVID was another, what, six to $10 trillion. I mean, these are astronomical amounts of money and it all had to be borrowed. And so that's right. the accelerator. That's the inflation accelerator. And none of that money had to be spent. We could have cured, uh, well, first of all, COVID would have gone away in about uh, 10 weeks just because most people, you know, got immunity to it, me included. I got it when it went through here. Uh, um, I don't know if I ever talked to you about this. Remember when COVID went through very first week of January? First, like the end of December, beginning of January 2020, everybody had a cough. Everybody was getting sick. We didn't know what it was. Well, it was COVID. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so we were all cured before yeah. we even knew what it was. We, all, we were all immune before right. we knew what it was. So all that money that was spent right. was spent because the, you know, the government program wanted to make money. So if you take out that accelerator, you take out all the war accelerations, and we got the permanent war class, which I guess they've decided Ukraine's not going to be what they want. So now they're going to move to Sudan and, and maybe Tunisia next. Um, but all these things, all this amazing amount. Of, so that's the accelerator. So Congress borrowing money is the accelerator. Well, to try to counteract that, they've got the break. Well, the break is interest rates. Well, interest rates slow down the economy. You know, it costs more money to borrow money. And you're saying the business, uh, businesses might uh, not make the decision to borrow because it's too expensive to borrow money now. Well, that's the exact opposite of what you need, you know, to get rid of, uh, to counter inflation, you need a, a, a economy. You know, so people can make money yeah. to buy things that are more expensive. So now if you, if you not only raise the price of everything and raise the price of money so the business activity lowers, you know, you've got the experiment in the break. And the only way to do it is to take your hands off both or take your feet off both, actually. Take your feet off the accelerator. Stop borrowing. Take your feet off the the, uh, the brake. Interest rates. I don't see any other way out yeah. of this. They're doing exactly the wrong stuff. I seem to think that um, you know next year or towards the end of the year, the Fed's going to start lowering rates, uh, which is going to do nothing but bolster the economy, right? You know, mm-hmm. so when the Fed starts lowering rates, or if we do, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to play devil's advocate, but if we do mm-hmm. go into recession mm-hmm. and it's worse than everybody thinks it is, the Fed will start lowering rates. And I mean, the Fed's looking for a reason to lower rates because right now, let's talk budget deficit, right? The okay. government's going to have problems paying its bills. You know, I mean, it mm-hmm. has these monster interest payments it has to start making, which means the government naturally has to start spending less, right? Um, you know, so um, that's basically what the House is trying to do. They're trying to say, hey, you know, raising the raising the debt ceiling right now is idiotic. Um, you know, one of the conversations that I heard the guy say, they said, you know. 
you know, all the Democrats were up in arms about the Trump administration spending four trillion dollars. The Biden mm-hmm. administration's only three years in, and they're at eleven trillion. You know, he's like <laughs> yeah. they're almost four. They're almost um, three times, three times yeah. what the last administration is, and they're not even done yet. They're talking yeah. about more spending and more spending, and they were consistently complaining about how much he spended and what he was doing to the country, but they don't seem to care. You know, He says, why, why, why are people not talking about this? I can't remember what that guy's name is um, or where he's from, but I was like, my god. You know what I mean? Like, you know, who's really looked at it? You know what I mean? The, the, the country's debt limit is, is – or debt is it, what, $32 trillion now? Uh-huh. You know, well, no. Well, I think it's something like Larry Kudlow. Is, is it Larry Kudlow you're talking about? Who was talking about this? I can't. Sounds I, like him. I can't remember. Oh, okay. Kind of a kind of a chubby face guy. Yeah, I think so. I'm not sure. Yeah, because yeah, there's so many in Washington because they eat well. Um, yeah, but <laughs> they do. Listen, I tell you, like I say, I used to be able to tell when I was a uh, an intern in Washington back when I was 20 years old, uh, and I'm there, uh, you know, with the other interns in, in Congress, and I was with the consumer group. I was in my more liberal days. Washington actually helped cure me of liberalism. It's really kind of interesting, even though that was my environment growing up. There really wasn't much choice. You know, it's like free speech on college campuses. You know, uh, to the right are the leftists, and to the, the left are the Marxists. <laughs> you know, that's your free speech. So right. As long as you're within those bounds, you're right. okay. Um, but right. it's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So, the, the you know, and this is, I post about this too on Facebook all week that the idea that Congress is, is is praising themselves for cutting spending and raising the debt ceiling at the same time is insane. The, yeah. Why do they even bother raising the debt ceiling? You know, you know, the, the cure for this is to not is to stop spending. You can spend below the debt ceiling. Nobody ever talks about that. I, I feel like I'm the only voice out there saying this is a big lie. This is, this is not true. We do not have to raise the debt ceiling to meet our obligations. We have to lower our obligations down to the debt ceiling. And no yeah, says that's that. right. That's Why right. is that so hard to say? That's right. I mean, could they, could they imagine, you know, um, in, instead of, you know, supporting the, the proxy war that's going on over in the Ukraine, if they uh-huh. put $100 billion into the infrastructure like they were supposed to? Right? Yep. They put hundred billion dollars into public schools and, and raising salaries and, and you know doing things that are going to benefit our society and our people. Could you imagine that? You know what I mean? Well, like, I, like you know, I can imagine a lot better things than education. I would I would privatize the whole thing, but I know what you mean. You know, bridges well, infrastructure, it as an, as an analogy, yeah. right? You yeah. know, I mean, like mm-hmm. you know, we definitely could you know bolster our roads, bolster our bridges. You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of stuff that we could do. You know, what I mean, it's just uh, and and the Fed the feds could do it. You know, what I mean, giving it to the states, I mean, they're going to do stupid stuff with it. You know, so it's a it's. Oh, I stuff. think it's retarded. Yeah, I would yeah, love like to, to do see. Go ahead. I would love to see a government budget um, audit. I would love to see where all the money goes, and then start showing where, where follow the trail, follow the trail of where it goes, and I think you, we would have a better society. Because I would well, bet you there's hundreds of billions of dollars that are just uh-huh. getting funneled into places that people have no idea where it went. I mean, I saw oh, that first back in Iraq. You know, I mean, yeah. I saw I saw a project with my own eyes. They're like, this is a seven hundred dollar, seven hundred million dollar complex that we're building, and I'm like, you know, looking at these huts that they built, and I'm like, <laughs> I would struggle to say it wasn't that bad. But I was like, I would struggle to say there would be a hundred million dollars here. You know, I mean, so yeah. where's the other, where's the other six hundred? You know, seven hundred, whatever, whatever it was. You know, I'm just like, man, these buildings are crap. You know what I mean? Like, and and they're talking about, and it wasn't even a lot of them. And they're just like, oh yeah, this is, you know, well who, where did that money go? Who whose pockets got lined? 
You know what I mean? Like well, that's the question that I would. That would be the military construction industrial complex. <laughs> yeah, and and this is an Iraqi so, so thing. Funny, the funny thing was is is the construction people were from Australia. Well, that's so, worse. You know, that, that, that's, that's foreign aid. Uh, well, that's foreign aid then. Right. <laughs> so so they were the construction people were from Australia. Um, you know, the construction crew was all what they called TCN, third country nationals. Okay. You know, so um, you know they were they were you know Filipino Indian. You know, I mean, it was just it was a mix of hodgepodge. You know what I mean? These were the guys, and they they contract all these cheap labor. You know what I mean to to come in because those countries don't have the same laws that we have. You know, so yeah. what do we do? We follow we follow the same suit that everybody uh, wants to persecute the world for doing. You know what I mean? Like how hypocritical oh, yeah. of our country? <laughs> yeah, don't look at us. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, That's... you know, back back then, I was I was I, I don't want to call myself naive. You know what I mean? I was just I was a soldier doing what I was told. You know, I mean, it's right. just uh, you're you're programmed and and you see this stuff and and I I guess I wasn't mature enough. This that would be the answer. I wasn't mature enough to understand what was going on. Well, that's why the military takes people at eighteen. You know, if they took people, there was a psychological study done that actually the military would love. Okay, so that no, actually <laughs> well, that's I good was, though. Yeah, twenty one when I went in the guard, and that was twenty twenty three when I went active duty. So. Yeah, no, that's actually a good thing. Now, I remember watching a, a back a PBS special uh, talked about how uh, they, their military really love to have sixteen year olds because they can make them love war. You know, they their sixteen year olds are like really gung ho. I, I was flying airplanes at sixteen, so I know I know I was pretty gung ho about that. Uh, pretty fearless too. Um, but by the time you're twenty one, yeah. you know, you do the job because it's your job, uh, and you'll do it properly and carefully and all that. But you can't, you don't love it. You know, you don't love going to war after a certain point. You know, you don't have that same blind obedience ideology. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll take the hill, whatever the hill is, for no reason, without a question. That's why they like younger people in. Uh, but at 23, you had a lot more sense, which is interesting. So now, I, I think I stepped yeah. in twice. So this yeah. is Iraq you're talking about, these, this building complex? Because it could be yeah. just, yeah. As, yeah, yeah. just as easily in Afghanistan, I'm of, sure. Just north of Baghdad, it was, uh, it was uh-huh. a complex that they built for schools and for, you know, for um, – you know, kids and a couple of them were housing units and things like that. I mean, it was just why really to that? bolster their economy. Hmm? Yeah, well, I mean, why are we boasting their economy when ours is thirty trillion in debt? <laughs> you know, oh, this, the, the, the absurdity. I mean, Greg, this yeah. is this is oh man, oh god, oh oh five, you know, two thousand five. Okay. <laughs> you right. know, so golly, what eight, uh, eighteen years ago? Don't stop yeah. aging me. <laughs> yeah, feeling old. Dude, I was born in '59, so you don't want to talk about aging. You know, so we'll, <laughs> I know, we'll, we'll good, compare. No, you're so old, Derek. You know, all your wise years of wisdom and experience. You know. um, we got to talk about sometime how you got into this, this economic financial thing too. That'd be kind of interesting as well. But I know, I know you don't have much time. I got a million questions, but let's get Pianki who's on the line too. I think he has a question for you. Good morning, Pianki. Yeah. We'll have to be quick. Yeah, Derek, I was going to ask time. Greg. Uh, do he need my mailing address so he can send about forty dollars a month because? His credit score is higher than mine. My, I don't have a credit <laughs> score right now, dude. I'm, I'm a poor entrepreneur. I don't have a credit score. <laughs> I wish yeah. I did, actually. I, you know, How about I can't Derek? Tell Derek, you, you, better, you better Derek's credit Derek, credit you over sending mine. my $40 a month because your credit <laughs> score is higher than mine? <laughs> well, I'm sure it, well, my loan is already done, so I'm not sure that it could be adjusted. But, you know, yeah, I I, I, I read that stuff, Pianchi, man. I mean, it's a, it's a bunch of garbage. Yeah, I do have a good credit score, um, you know, but uh, I guess I got to support people who don't because they made poor decisions. Yeah, yeah. Hey, what's well, your industry saying about that? 
Um, they haven't really said anything yet because it hasn't gone in hasn't gone in as a as a bill or rule yet. Um, that I think it I think it hit the floor is what the article said. It hit the floor like May first, and they're talking about you know where it's going to go from there. I I personally think it'll get shot down in a blaze of glory. Um, you know, so I just don't think it's going to go anywhere. It's going to be a nothing burger. Into the pandering file. Right, right. You know, I mean, you know, that's that's very socialistic of of our government to say, okay, people that can't afford loans, we're going to subsidize them off the backs of the people that can. You know, so um, I just don't. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know how far it will really go, but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not a not a big fan of it. Let me ask you, do you have time for one more question, or do you have to go? Yeah, go ahead. All right. So we talked earlier about uh, investment companies, you know, becoming banks. I don't want to mention names or things like that. But if I remember my economic history, part of the problem with the Depression uh, was the fact that banks were acting as insurance companies, were acting as stockbroking companies. That they blurred the lines. And there was a federal law that was passed after the Depression to stop that from happening again. And I, don't, I forgot whether it's banks, insurance companies, or investment companies, or all three were kind of combining. And you can't do that. At least you couldn't do that. Has that law been changed? Am I remembering this right? Or do you know anything about the, the separation of, of the, the financial categories between investments, uh, investment firms, between banking firms, and between insurance companies? I don't, um, but I do know that they carry separate rules, right? So a bank, okay. um, you know, a bank has to have so much money. They fall under the Federal Reserve. They have to have so much money in reserves. They have to have so much money to cover their, their insured bank deposits. Um, the insured bank deposit is a, is a better way of saying um, ones that are insured by FDIC, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so even though the investment firm, they do banking-type transactions, they still have to buy the insurance from the FDIC, right? So the FDIC okay. technically, while it's the federal depository, whatever reserve or whatever it is, right? I can't remember what FDIC stands for, but you know, it, it is actually federal not deposit a insurance corporation, if I remember. Right. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So, so it's actually it's yeah, but it's not a federal agency. It's actually a private company. You know, that your money with, well, so goes. The, Fed. <laughs> the federal reserve yeah, isn't a right. government agency either. Yeah. Right. So, so you know, I mean, it, 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 the rules for for having these things are completely separate. You know, when it comes to um, investment companies, they fall under the SPIC, the Securities Protection is, uh, Insurance Corporation. So the SPIC basically says the same thing that the FDIC is. You know, if you have, you know, a uh, uh, quarter million dollars in an investment and that company goes insolvent, right? Not right. your investment, you know, not what their investment is, but most likely, you know, somebody will come in and buy that company. That is not individual companies. It is the investment company, Right. Because if you buy stocks, you take the risk of buying that stock and the company going belly up, right? Right. Um, mm-hmm. When you buy a mutual fund, that's the reason you buy a mutual fund is because it diversifies that risk and, and it should never go belly up, right? And you know most mutual funds, no no mutual fund has gone 100% belly up, right? Have they had their issues? Yes, uh, but you know most of them are acquired by other companies, you know what I mean, or they're dissolved and they pay their shareholders and they walk away, you know. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if they don't meet those thresholds. So I would say even though that that might be happening, um, you know, I mean, they, they have to have a separate division and it falls under separate rules. Okay. Now we forgot to talk about bank failure. So if I can get you for another couple of minutes, um, 
what's the difference between a regional – what makes a bank a regional bank? Is it the amount of money they have? Is it they only cover a certain part of the country? And, and why is the squeeze on them? Why are they failing as opposed to the, the J.P. Morgan, the Chase, the, the, the big, you know, the, the, the multinational huge banks? What makes a bank regional? So I – I think so. What makes them regional is everything that you just said. One, I mean, they're okay. to a specific part of the country. Um, you know, they're not they're not uh, they're not nationwide. Um, and then next, you know, I mean, you know, in order for them to be a bigger bank, they have bigger depository requirements, right? You know, I mean, okay. I don't know what those requirements are off the top of my head by any means, but it basically says, hey, you know, regional banks are going to be at X. You know, to be a bigger bank or a you know, semi-national bank, you've got to be at this. And then to be a national bank or an international bank, you've got to be this, right? You know, so I would assume there's there's some type of tier system built into it. Well, I mean, I know that there's a tier system. I just don't know what the tier system is, is what I'm saying. Um, so, and then regional banks, the reason, I, I don't think, so in the language that they put in the report, I don't think that they're failing yet. I think they're having problems with the stress test that the Fed is putting out. So what happens is the year uh, each year, or a couple times a year, the Fed says, okay, you need to bolster your, your reserve currency, right? How much they mm-hmm. need to hold in reserve. And what right. they'll do is they'll send a test, they'll send a test through the system, you know, to ping their banks, you know, electronically to say, okay, are your transactions enough to cover this limit, right? That's what a stress test is in a bank, right? Well, there's more involved to it. And I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to minimize it to what it, what it right, really that's is, fine. right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, you know, anyway, they'll ping it. And basically what happened, what I, I, none of these banks that they listed, I think first horizon was the one, um, that I'm talking about. They did a stress test and it came back and said they didn't have enough to cover deposits. So what do they do? They start scrambling and say, okay, um, we're just going to start selling off pieces of our stuff. Right. You know I mean? So they're going to bolster their money that way. So typically what happens, like, you know, for example, what was the one that, um, JT Morgan just bought? JP Morgan flipped in and bought one of Yeah. Was it First Republic? Yeah, I couldn't I remember so. which yeah. one it was. Yeah, so so you know, I mean the same thing's gonna happen with First Horizon. You know, another bank is gonna come in quietly and be like, Okay, give us all your client base. You know, here's here's whatever money and you and you guys walk away. You know, and then they, they just get gobbled up by a bigger bank. You know, so yeah, how does that happen? I, you know, I, I, I've had banks be bought three times. You know, I started with one bank and then uh, like three two banks later, you know, within a couple of years. How do you buy? How does a bank buy a bank? What 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 are they actually buying? And if you have to leave any, I don't know. know. Well, you're buying your client base. I mean, that same thing happened to me. My first account was um, First Community Bank or something like that in in Alabama when I lived there. Then it was Uh taken over by South Trust, and South Trust was taken over by Wachovia, and Wachovia was taken over by Wells Fargo. So it was, uh, you know, I I got a new debit card and a a set of checks every couple years. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I had – now here's one, because when I was in California, we started off with Great Western and then something else, and then Washington Mutual bought them, and then they went broke in 2008. So somebody else had to pick it up. I think Chase bought it, you know, so yeah. Yeah, That's weird. So they're buying – so they're actually buying – it's like mortgages when they buy the mortgages. So these people are, are – I mean, who do they pay? How do you buy a bank? I mean, I mean they, pay, they, pay, they pay the, um, the bank shareholders. You know what I mean? Like whoever has stake in the bank. You know, they make, okay. and that's not, that's not necessarily the stock. So the way it works is, you know, there's a and – I, and I could butcher this because I haven't done – this is like really like – this is like Series 7 stuff, man. This is stuff I had to study to get my license. <laughs> but, um, oh, yeah. Well, we, we, yeah. Make a correction next week. It's okay. That's what we have next week for. You know, well, it's, uh, it, 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 
you know, it basically goes that the that there's a there's a status when a when a company fails, you know, what system they're paid in. It's like pay their employees, um, pay their debts, uh, pay their private stockholders, and then like the shareholders are the absolute last people to be paid. Oh, which most of the well, time I yeah. will tell you don't get paid. They they don't like if you haven't sold your stock. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like seriously, it's it's you know I know, I know that sounds terrible. Let me use yeah. let me use GM for example. You know I've okay. got I've got somebody that that has like I don't know 150 thousand shares of GM warrants, right? And what a warrant is is the company says, okay, yeah, we went belly up, but we're going to give you this other thing, which is just like a stock, right? And it and it's share for share. And mm-hmm. if we ever get to a position that we're financially you know, stable and we're doing really, really, really good, we'll maybe give you portions of this back, right? We'll mm-hmm. give you stock, you know, dollar for dollar, right? So mm-hmm. this 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 uh, client has like 150,000 shares or something like that. It would it would equal something like $15 million. It's ridiculous, right? Wow. Um, because the, the couple used to work for GM and they put a lot of money in their stock. And in 2008, 2009, they went belly up. You know what I mean? The stock, they, they, they got rid of it, right? So they started a new one, and um, you know they gave warrants to all the people that had it, and those warrants have sat there since 2008, and they haven't been paid one dime. Oh boy! <laughs> yeah. Wow. So you know, I mean, and and what I've been telling folks, you know, last thing, and then I got to speed out here, but uh, okay. um, that's one of those words I was <laughs> that you said that was terrible. <laughs> are, are, remember that posting? Yeah, we'll uh, talk about that after, John. Uh, you, yeah. you can catch the podcast. So, uh, on that one's hysterical. Uh, yeah. Oh man, I lost it. I forgot. What <laughs> you, you were going to skedaddle? <laughs> no, I was, I was saying something before that. I was going to say the last thing, but I can't remember what it was. Not important. Okay, Don't worry about it. Give your phone number again, then uh, we'll pick it up next week. Yeah. No worries. Well, thanks again. Uh, this is Derek with the Action Radio Financial Report. You can get me at 850-995-0082. Thanks, Derek. We'll talk to you next week. Yep. And then you can think about what you were going to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Take care. It's, it's all right. See you later. It's Friday. You know, it's just, it's, it's definitely, uh, it's kind of a crazy Friday. Friday's not catch up day. Um, I've got an interview I can play. In fact, I, I prepared it earlier. It's actually, um, uh, the, I, I'm taking on my WEBY interviews. And the, the one I have now is, uh, Jose Diaz, who was the, uh, California Berkeley uh, Republican club president. Uh, guy was former Coast Guard. It's an interesting interview. So I might play that a little bit later in the show, but let me get to Pianchi who uh, didn't have much of a chance. Pianchi, do you have any other economic stuff you want to hash out? Um, <laughs> the, the racist credit card charges were interesting, or the, the racist mortgages, you know, because we see this stuff all the time. It's like when they were trying to forgive the student loans, or as I called it, graduate student welfare. <laughs> the same thing. You know, uh, <clears throat> the Biden administration must have some curious people working in this administration to come up with these ideas. Can't be here. I see a good thing. Susan Rice is re uh, walking off the scene. And no, I'm she's, no, she's, I, well, no she's, she's never walking off the scene. She's too entrenched. She's like the ultimate insider. She's the one that lied about Benghazi. She's the one that uh, she was supposed to be vice president, I found out recently. But she blew it when she, uh, you know, bragged about uh, spying on the Trump campaign. You know, the day Trump was inaugurated, that wasn't smart. <laughs> That's probably the only real mistake she's ever made. Um, but uh, I remember when the time when she was lying about Benghazi, I said, this is impossible. There's no way an organized attack like this was spontaneously from a video that only about 150 people had seen. Because I actually researched it, you know, when, after this lie came out, because the, there was a time when you could look up how many views there were over time. 
And so I, I, you can't do this anymore. But when YouTube came out several years ago, you could look up. So this would be pre-20, this would be, when was Benghazi, 2012? So around then, you could actually check the views, you know, and so I looked at the views of this, this so-called video that caused all the, the, the consternation, that supposedly caused the spontaneous, you know, riot, um, and it had like 150. You know, of course, as soon as Susan Rice announced that it was the, the cause of the riot, it had like, you know, several million. But the point was that, you know, the, it, how could 150 some odd views, you know, create a riot uh, when those views were American views, I imagine. Uh, how many, I don't even know if they had any views over in, in, um, in Libya. So she's a liar. She is a first-class liar. But I knew she was lying because she blinks too much. That's, how, that's her tell. Everybody has a tell when they lie. Nobody is – unless you're a total psychopath like Dr. Fascist uh, who can lie completely uh, without even you – know, he divorces himself from any form of humanity when he lies. But Susan Rice, uh, she's very good, but she's not perfect. And she blinks too much. That's how I knew she was lying. And now on with the show. <laughs> well, we got time. Well, I'm gonna play a couple things here, and then we'll get back. I've got uh, uh, just a bunch of different articles and things, but uh, it's more fun to hash out stuff with you. Uh, did you did you catch my my electric car show yesterday? We had a lot of uh, topics on that. Oh, I see. What Dominion Energy is going to expand its production, building uh, new gas plants, a new gas. Oh, okay. Plant. So what's well, the? I know Dominion Voting Machines. That, I guess a lot of companies. Have, must be Canadian. They're all named Dominion something or other. We had Dominion Grocery Store. Yeah, that's in uh, Yorkin. That's in Yorkin's territory. Uh, Governor Yorkin. So uh, they're not falling for the clean energy prey. Uh, they're going to go ahead and build and use the natural resources that they have. That's good. Well, that'd be nice. Yeah. Well, it's. it's- Break then we can hash out stuff, and I've got different articles if we need to, uh, if we want to wander things. But there's enough, there's enough issues out there. Uh, and then what I'll do is I'll just play um, an interview, and we'll probably have a little bit of time after that. So let's go to play a couple things here, and whatever I played it is now eight thirteen, and I'll be back in uh, just a little bit. Do you know your way around healthcare, insurance, pharmacies, surgery, alternative treatments, and choices? I don't which is why I'm so glad I met Priscilla Romans, had her on Action Radio, and learned about health patient advocacy. She is the founder of Great Care. And now as an affiliate of Great Care, we are proud to offer through our discount code, WYL, which stands for Write Your Laws, a 10% discount. Great Care saves you both time and money. They provide medical advocacy, consultation, advice, and recommendations nationwide. Their website is greatcare.com. That's G-R-A-I-T-H care.com. You can email them at greatcare.adm at gmail.com or call them at 469-864-7149. That's 469-864-7149. Great Care, better health through better knowledge and advocacy. Hello, this is Greg Penglis for our newest shooting range here in Milton, Florida. Stand your ground. My friend Jason Myers and crew are creating an incredible facility for our city. Stand your ground is located at 6632 Elva Street. The phone number is 850-789-1776. Their email is standyourground1776 at gmail.com. 
Here you'll find either in process or already going an indoor shooting range, axe throwing, archery, a rage room, self-defense classes, concealed carry weapons classes, security license training, paintball, a full-service gun store, and 24-7 online ordering. So come on down or contact them by phone, email, or website and learn how you can best stand your ground. This is Greg Penglis for Strike Force, your source for pure energy. Strike Force is a concentrated energy drink that turns a half liter of your favorite beverage into an energy drink. You make your energy drink yourself. Action Radio is an affiliate of Strike Force, so our listeners get a 20% discount. All you do is add our code WYL to the discount code window at checkout. WYL comes from our website, Write Your Laws. So, you can get your energy drink, a 20% discount, and help Action Radio change the relationship of we the people to our government. Not bad. Strikeforce is at StrikeforceEnergy.com. That's StrikeforceEnergy.com. Start your engine. Action Radio, part of the ADHD Radio Network, the ultimate free speech zone. We the people give our consent to be governed through writing the laws by which we are governed and have the power through juries to nullify the laws by which we do not consent to be governed. At Action Radio, we don't report the news. We are the news. Every other show reports what has happened. We talk about what can happen. From the questions no one has thought to ask, to the answers no one has thought to consider, to the actions no one has dared to take, that is Action Radio. Uh, Rebecca, i got Pianchi here, and I've got uh, like articles and things, but I want to sort of hold those off for a while. I'd rather talk, because uh, I haven't heard from you that much this week, Pianchi. It's been, uh, I guess, busy. <laughs> There's been a lot of issues we had, and we can certainly uh, hash out any of those now. But um, um, So what's in your mind? Anything that, that stood out this week that um, you think we should be discussing? Well, there's a lot of emphasis uh, on some of these states that's passing these bills to give uh, parents, making parents' rights fundamental. So I wonder, you know, I think so many times we talk about this too, and this is, a good, this is a really good point of yours, is that they pass laws for things that are already covered by laws or by constitutional rights. And yet they, people forget that they don't use the right that already exists. They go for law. I mean, parental rights are individual rights. You know, you would think that uh, unless it's something that someone's definitely going after parents for is saying you can't like when the when the, when the schools, you know, say you, you, you can't influence the curriculum. You you can't take our pornographic books out. You, you can't stop our drag, drag queen shows. You know, you would like well with the drag queens, you know, Tennessee handled it the best way. They classify them as strip shows, which are for adults only. So they can't be in the schools. I mean, that to me is a really good solution. Um, there's been a couple of other things that uh, states have done like that, that are very creative solutions. So I'm wondering, 
you know, why do you need specific parental rights and how are parental rights, parental rights different from individual rights? Obviously, education is a government function and we have, uh, you know, rights from government. Now, education is not a right, <laughs> you know, but they can't stop you either. You know, so I'm not sure how, how that would work out. So are they any of the bills that you can think of? Are they things that are already covered or are they specifically needed? Because it's like every time something comes up, people no, are passing the law. The, Go ahead. It's because of the, the tw- transgender movement and the gender assignment movement that's going on. And, you know, like Joe Biden made this statement uh-huh. that uh, parents, uh, those aren't your kids, they're our kids. Yeah. Well, this is a really interesting point. So let me find an article I've been meaning to get to for a long time. But as we discussed on the show here, there's no such thing as transgender because you cannot change your gender. Uh, in fact, it's actually it's your sex. So we're talking about transsexual, you know, which reminds me of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is a great film that you don't see anymore because it was funny and it made fun of transvestites which are people that cross-dress, <laughs> you know, as opposed to, uh, you know, the only, the only two transgenders are hermaphrodites, and that's a biological problem that, that definitely needs addressing, but it, it's not, uh, you know, it's, it's not like this, this so-called trans movement. So men who want to live their lives as women and women who want to live their lives as men is fine, but you're not a group. You're, you're not a civil right. There's nothing, there's nothing special. You know, this is why we did the, I came up with the whole idea of, uh, uh, of cosmetic and elective surgery. So it's not a, it's an individual choice, but it's not an individual right. See, there's a difference, you know. Uh, and it, but what's going on is this movement is scary because they're violent. You know, we still don't have the manifesto from the Tennessee murders. You know, what's so bad that we can't read? I mean, everybody knows about the Holocaust. How much bad? How much worse could it be than that? You know, something somebody just wrote. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like well, a different category. So what has happened is that you put. The, I listened to committee hearings in uh-huh. Louisiana State legislated the other day and you had people coming up and you have this thing now where it's uh, it's a medical condition. It's a mental condition. Uh, if you don't do it, kids commit suicide. So they throw all those issues out there. And recently wait, wait. you had those Virginia lawmakers caught on a high, hot mic mocking parental rights as garbage and stupid. Mm-hmm. So it's, the battle will continue. Well, what's interesting is that people, the students uh, and young folks are far more likely to commit suicide after altering surgery and drugs than they are before. See, before they still have their body intact. But once you per- make permanent changes, I think that's what drives people crazy, is you make permanent changes to their body that they cannot reverse. They're, they're stuck with this, you know, for, for the rest of their life. They've made, they've made these changes, especially if they're young, um, the betrayal and the rage and they, they, they join the, 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 you know, this, this group of folks, uh, this rebellious group, um, I think it's kind of like a therapy or a sort of a reconciliation or something, you know, or the only way to take the rage out. But the problem is they're taking the rage out against the wrong people. We didn't do it to them. You know, their liberal parents and their liberal school districts did it to them. And the liberal society and the woke folks, they're the ones who did it. Don't take it on us, you know, independents, conservatives. We don't care. And we, and in fact, I, I post this on Facebook. Universally, conservatives do not care if a person wants to alter themselves surgically or take drugs because they do that with cosmetic surgery all well, the time. Yeah, when they grow and they can, they can do whatever they want to. But when you're under 18 years old, the law stipulates right. that uh, it's not going to happen. So and one thing is that you get you leave the kids around yeah. Louisiana that forbids it, and then people are sending their kids to Louisiana to have these. So Louisiana is, is – 
is going to have a vote come up probably this next week in uh, their state senate where they're going to pass the law saying that it's forbidden. Under well, it should be. You know, it'd be nice if there was a national law, but Congress is going to do that because you know they're they're kind of useless. But see, this is what the states. This is the best thing the states can do. So the states that have new abortion laws, the states that have, you know, you know, mandatory you can't touch the kids. It should it should be like that'd be a great title for the bill. You can't touch the kids law. <laughs> you know, leave the kids alone. You know, be like uh, Pink Floyd. <laughs> hey, leave those kids alone. <laughs> you know, but it's true. You leave the kids alone. You don't do this to them, you know, but that includes I would I think uh, at this point, even sending kids to a, a, uh, a government school is a form of child abuse. Now, a lot of people are forced into it because they simply don't have the money, you know, and we need to fix that situation. Well, Derek said something interesting. I was going to bring this up again with him. Let me, let me ask, let, ask you. You figure all the money, the, the six trillion for Afghanistan, the eight trillion for uh, uh, Iraq or whatever it was, you know, the, the what, you know, 12 trillion for covid. You know, there's like there's like the government spent about twenty four, twenty five trillion dollars and wasted it over the last 20 years, um, you know, and, we, you know, as much as people want a national health system, we could have had a health voucher for everybody in this country that where the health insurance would have been paid, you know, all the money that's been spent. Uh, in fact, just take out the borrowing, you know, don't borrow, but just but we could easily have a national health or at least the states could have maybe a reimbursement of the feds, a health voucher where nobody would have to die because they didn't have the health insurance, where they didn't have to make medical decisions, you know, based on whether they could afford it or not. Now, I'm not talking about elective stuff. I'm talking about, you know, actual genuine medical things. But we could fund something like that in a voucher system, just like you have health choice, the same as you'd have school choice. We could have school choice, too. For all the money we put into these foreign wars to make neocons, the military-industrial complex rich, we could have funded school choice and health choice and been a million times better off. And I think conservatives would have supported that. What do you think? Well, they have uh, availability for disadvantaged people to get medical treatment in your comprehensive health centers in cities mm-hmm. that operate on a reduced and sliding scale. So the access is already there. People complain and say, you got those pundits that say that it's not, but it exists. Yeah, there's like urgent care. I think we have urgent care around here. That's that's a, a lower cost alternative. So there's a lot of lower cost alternatives. So so one thing we could do also is make uh, medical cost uh, either tax credit or tax deductible. You could do that too. So there should be yeah, a way to. to um, well, that's a different story. Don't they get medical coverage anyway? They get it, they they all show up in emergency rooms. The, the thing you want to do is make sure that the aliens are excluded because they need to go home. That's the first thing. Um, but as far as um, as far as medical costs, yeah, and you know, um, it's a good question. Uh, folks that don't work, I don't know, don't they get healthcare anyway? I'm not sure how it works. How does it work? Do you know? Yeah, it's still the same thing. You can go somewhere or another they, they go to these these comprehensive health clinics, which uh-huh. offer all sorts of services, including dental and eye, and they pay on a sliding scale, reduced. Yep. Or sometimes, in some cases, I imagine that uh, the services are, are no cost. Mm-hmm. Well, I know also the universities, the training, the medical universities and the training universities, you can go to like a dental school as a patient. You know, they're not experts yet. They're still in training, but you can actually get some kind of care, you know, supervised, you know, from people that are trained to be dentists. So there, there are options. there's all kinds of options out there. But the thing is to, to get the government out of the national health protocol death panel thing that they're doing now. That's a whole different story. It's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, In another bill, 
uh-huh. where they forbid in schools teachers to use the pronouns that all of a sudden have popped up on identifying a child. So they're going to have to identify the child as their biological birth. So where do you think this comes from? Let's, let's, let's see if we can, uh, let's get to the root of all this, you know, the root of, of this idea that people can change their sex. Where does this come from and why is it important? Why are they pushing this so hard that uh, the whole pronoun, who, you know, pronoun, I mean, pronouns, look, pronouns was decided by the rules of English a long time ago. You know, your personal pronouns are I and me. You know, your, your, your third person pronouns are he, she, and they. You know, but, but they is plural. They is only for plural. Although sometimes, you know, in fact, it's funny, when I, when I initially wrote my book, uh, The Complete Guide to Flight Instruction, I had it, I had it uh, gender neutral because I didn't want to assume that women, you know, wouldn't read it and wouldn't be pilots. You know, and, and then my, my, uh, my book company, which is made up of women, <laughs> you know, said, no, you've got to change it all to he because uh, that's, that's, the, that's the, uh, the norm at the time when I wrote the book. It was back in 92 when I wrote The Complete Guide. Uh, it was published in 94. So we're going to come up next year on the 30th anniversary of uh, the publishing of my, my first book. Of course, hopefully there'll be a second book you know, coming out soon. I have to start writing it. Um, but, uh, but the point is they, they insisted on they. You know, I was doing they. You know, and I wrote it you know, so that uh, women wouldn't be thought. Because I had a lot of women students. And uh, this is before it became, you know, there were a lot of women students out there. You know, so it was, it was an interesting thing. But that's why I, I was way ahead of my time you know, taking out the, the stuff because they didn't want it to appear sexist. And, and so that, but now it's different. Now it's like a, a war. You have to, you know, I'm a they. No, you're not a they. You know, they was, was plural, meaning both genders, so that nobody would assume sexism and, and people could equally read the book, you know, men and women. That's why I wrote it that way. But if you call yourself a they, that's just bad English. You know, you're not a they. You know, you're, you're, a, you're an I, me, he, she. Uh, it's only they if, there's more, if it's plural. That's just, you know, and so why this violation of the English language? What, what's the purpose of this? No, you got to have some of the people that's behind us on your show. Well, we've actually had a couple of trans people on the show. Now, the first, the, the last one, you know, I didn't go into the, the whole trans issue because I really wanted to explore the progressive socialist part of it first, and that was more important. But we had, during Dorothy's report, we had a, a trans person come on the show. And I think, and again, I'm still at the curious point uh, as to the whys and the wherefores and the hows and, and why they do this. Do this. But, it's, but I don't think either of these folks were politically, were particularly um, politically active in the trans movement. They've they just done it for themselves. But if somebody wants to call the show or contact me, you know, on Facebook or Greg at writeyourlaws.com, who is a radical trans activist and wants to talk about this in a civil manner, I'm open because I'm curious. I don't know what they're trying to accomplish. Neither do the lesbian and gay folks well, apparently. They are, there's a movement to drop it. You know, you know. there's uh-huh. some provisions out there where a child can have these assignments done without even notifying the parents. Uh, you well, got so provisions where children as young as uh, 10 can have abortion without, 10 or 12 can have abortion without notifying the parents. Yep. Yep. We've got our, our person from Florida and now Germany here. We were typing in. I haven't checked a live chat for a bit. So uh, so he's talking about, oh, this is interesting. I don't know when we talked about this. He says, please remember the Department of Defense was formerly known as the Department of War. I have mentioned that on the show, but uh, I don't know. I forgot in the context we talked about that. Well, that's that's a euphemism. That's like, uh, let's see if I can think of another Department of Education. Well, that's just different. Then he says, and this is B-Wise Aserpence. 
be wise as serpents? <laughs> That's the code I'm dealing with here. So there's no such thing as transgender. Yeah, we said that on the show a lot. There is no such thing as transgender because you cannot change your sex. Uh, it all revolves around sex for them. Okay, now I want to explain that. This is maybe they are they. <laughs> uh, they live, you know, uh, trans, trans demonic. Well, that's interesting, you know, from humanity to devil. All right, so it revolves. So, so uh, let's, let's get the sex Uh huh. Those are my comments on life. What chat. you have is children, you have children being groomed, groomed mm-hmm. into these ideas of thought. Mm-hmm. And then they take on these ideas of thought and start complaining about what they are and what they want to be. And then they start threatening or attempting suicide. Mm-hmm. And that's when it starts getting the spotlight and the attention that it, started, it has today. And it's just starting to get completely out of control. Yeah, but the people committing suicide, you know, are the ones that have gone through the process. It's like the, uh, the school shooters for years. You know, these, are still kids are. That, uh-huh. these are kids that have went through the process of attempting suicide. There's some a testimony where a child has, uh, you know, 15, 16 years old has attempted suicide several times because they don't like who they are. Yeah, but kids have done that since kids have been kids. I mean, that, that's been going on the whole, that's been going on forever. Well, you know, that's because it's been going on forever. It don't mean that it needs to be addressed. And that's what. Well, it does need to be addressed. Out. I mean, suicide. Medical suicide. Suicide. Always forth. You got doctors. Yeah. You got doctors coming forth, quote-unquote specialists, that saying that these are medical attentions and that they need to be addressed. So that's the war that's going on now in that world. Hmm. Something that um, I remember hearing about, and I haven't really pursued it yet, uh, that uh, transgender folks are you know, self-identifying. You know, um, what do we, we need to call these people? We need to find a, a better name. Um, but the, someone made a comment that one of the major causes of depression for folks that have altered uh, is that they can't find dates. <laughs> and the reason they can't find dates is because the heterosexual majority uh, does not want to date a person who they can't identify with. You know, if you're a man, you want to date a woman. If you're a woman, you want to date a man. Uh, if you're gay, you know, if you're a gay man, you want to date a gay man. If you're a lesbian, you want to date a lesbian. You know, and that makes sense. And th- that, that's pretty well established. No one has a problem with that. But if you're a trans person where you're not – you know, you've, you, especially if you had surgery, who can you date? You know, and remember this when this is, this is a big issue a while ago that, uh, the, 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 the men who were trying to be women, you know, wanted to date men and men were like, wait a minute, you're a dude. I'm not going to date you. <laughs> you know, well, I'm different. I've, I've been altered surgically and, and, you know, chemically and I now identify as a woman. Yeah, but you're still a dude. So men aren't going to date you. Uh, but this is good. This is one of the big problems out there. And so I'm wondering why somebody would want to do this and put themselves in a position where the only people they can, you know, probably date are fellow trans altered people. That's what's causing suicides. What do you think? Can of worms them opening up or what? Yankee must be diverted. That's not what the parents are saying. So. You got parents that want their, don't want to lose their child, so they go along with what the child is talking about. And these children are being influenced by peers, as they normally do, and it has resulted into the problem that it is. So what states are doing is saying that those type of assignments 
cannot be done in the state for anyone that's under 18. Also saying that in your school and other uh, state uh, control organizations that uh, a child has to be, person has to be identified with the biological genitalia that they were born with, hmm. not something that they make of. Yeah, the basic thing is don't alter yourself, you know, because you're only going to cause just a whole lot of grief. And it can't, you know, you can't make yourself back again the way you were, you know, if you lose body parts. It just doesn't work that way. And you can't create body parts of, of the opposite sex. That doesn't work either. I don't care what medical science says. That's just Frankenstein medicine. So there's an article here I just started sort of perusing as we were talking. Psychologists can't figure out why hardly anyone wants to date a trans person. Well, I can tell you. Listen, I, this, we know why. Psychologists don't know why because they, 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 uh, they live in a strange world. But the rest of us know why. It's because you've lost your identity. People, I think, want to date somebody that they can identify. You know, I want to date a woman who's a woman. You know, I mean, uh, that just makes sense. Why, you know, and the same thing, heterosexual people want to date heterosexuals, you know, gay men want to date gay men, lesbian women want to date lesbian women, unless you're bisexual. That's a whole other category I haven't really explored. But they, you know, to to try and force people to go against their basic instinct and and be attracted to somebody that they're, you know, for political reasons, you can't force attraction on on people. And this is, this is where, this is where these, these things stumble. Because they can be as political as they want, they can be as guilt-ridden as they want, but when it comes down to it, human nature still wins out. You know, you're never going to make straight men, you know, like watching gay men do stuff on the movies. It's just not going to happen. There's a universal reaction in straight men that we just don't want to watch that. <laughs> you know, that's how you can tell the straight men in the theater. We used to joke about that in San Francisco. You know, you can tell the straight men from the gay men in the theater, you know, by who's watching the gay men on screen. Straight guys aren't going to do it, you know, and that's not, and you can, you can be as political and as, as uh, guilt ridden and you can try anything that you want to try. You're not going to change the basic, you know, nature of people as to who they're attracted to and what they want to watch. And that's where all that stuff. Uh... Oh, here, oh, here, this is uh, uh, my, my, this was on, um... oh my God, here, let me see. Do, do, do. I got, I got some comments to get you caught up on. Pianchi, tell me what you think of this. So this is back to uh, be wise, uh, assert. Pence. I guess that's be wise to serve parents, but I'm, I'm not sure what Pence is. We'll see what it is. Anyway, uh, this is my person. I think was from Florida. Now it's in Germany, if I remember, but I could be wrong. It says, before the children are groomed, they are first indoctrinated by way of the U.S. public fool system. I might tell you, I'm going to steal that. It's not the public school system. It's the public fool system. Then they say, because I don't know if it's male or female. Then they say, the truth be told, gay, men, gay men's greatest desire is to have a straight hetero man. Yeah, ain't gonna happen. <laughs> what now? Is, is yeah, I hear that in San Francisco. There was a, oh, I remember watching a comedian. It was a gay comedian guy uh, and a straight guy were on stage and they're doing stuff and and the gay guy says, "Look, I can give you a a, a comfortable you know gay man experience. You'll be fine. You'll be great. You'll be wonderful. You'll love it." And the, and the straight guy's like, "No, I'm not. <laughs> Get away." I said, "I'm not working with you on stage. But that's as far as it goes." But that was really funny. So uh, that would be interesting. So so then the question is, why do why do gay men want to, I thought I was going to say, you know, it was a straight woman, but uh, apparently it doesn't say that. Uh, and then it says, uh, another comment, I was shocked to discover that by way of research. That would be, I guess, that um, trans folks are having a tough time dating. dating. What is the next point? Rolling Stones don't seem to have a problem with selling at concerts. What does the Rolling Stones have to do with this? I have to get a comment on that. So for those who are listening to the podcast and don't know what I'm talking about, I'm reading off my live chat. Um, this issue is getting complicated. 
So what's going on in the black community uh, in terms of, of trans? How is that going over? Pianchi, if you have any insight. Well, you don't hear no talk about it. Really? You don't hear any talk about it from the the gatekeeper organizations, NAACP, Al Sharp, and so on and so on. Of course, they are going to be open for anybody because it increases their numbers and possibility of donations. So you don't hear the talk about it like you – you don't hear it opening like you hear it privately. Okay. How about the churches? Yeah. Uh, are there, are there, is there any encouragement for, for black uh, trans pastors, for example? To head up churches, or is that? I don't know. I don't. I'm, I don't get that close to churches. But I've heard some some uh, churches are opening their doors for transsexuals. Well, there's one thing to open your door. It's another thing to have have a person be a, a pastor, and it's another thing for that pastor to advocate a political cause while in church. But we all know churches are very political. Um, let me do this one thing, and then I want to move on to other topics here in a little bit. Uh, Mitch Jagger is a well-known. Oh, I'm not going to read that. In other words, Mick Jagger is a well-known homosexual. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> this is my comment. Uh, I've never heard that about Mick Jagger. Maybe his wives would disagree. Uh, I don't know if that's accusation or for real. All right. I want to do one more thing on this, and then I think we can uh, talk about other – there's some other topics I've, I've got for you uh, that I think uh, – I'm curious your, your opinion on. Anyway, I found this article. I've been meaning to get to it for weeks. Why some gays are trying to drop transgenders from LGBT. So it would just be LGB. This is from June 29th, 2016. So this has been going on for a while. Uh, article author is Zach Alston, uh, A-L-S-T-O-N, and then Z-A-C for the first name. And he says, are you confused or alarmed at the rise of transgenderism? And remember, this is written in 2016. This has been going on for a while. Uh, it says, you probably, you're probably not alone. In fact, you might even have some unlikely allies, not only in the form of radical feminists, but even gays and lesbians who feel it's time to drop the T from the LGBT movement. Says in November 2015, a group of gay and lesbian men and women launched a petition to have the T dropped from the LGB, arguing that the transgender community needs to be disassociated from the larger LGB community. As we got a little background noise there, uh, as we feel their ideology is not only completely different from that promoted by the LGB community. LGB is about sexual orientation. Trans is about gender identity, but is ultimately regressive and actually hostile to the goals of women and gay men. I find that fascinating. So I've been meaning to get to it for a while. Pianchi, what do you think? I never paid too much attention to that. Okay. Well, let me finish the article, then we can talk about other stuff. But I find this is, see, this, I, I want to know what the roots of this are. I mean, why, why the political war? What is behind it? And what is the ultimate goal? Is it the removal of, of any uh, sex identification as male or female? Is it the removal of any personality? Is it political oppression? Is it forcing people to do things that their gut tells them they're never going to do? Like I say, you can't, you can be as political as you want. You cannot force somebody to be attracted to you. You can't do it. Ain't going to happen. It's like this is why feelings aren't covered by uh, the Bill of Rights, because the government, as oppressive as they can be, as torturous as they can be, they can murder as many people as they want. They still cannot control people's feelings and emotions. They can't. They can control their physical body, but you cannot do that. And that's why, that's why feelings are never uh, superior to rights when it comes to our individual rights, because government can take away rights, but they can't take away feelings as much as they want to. All right. Then it says opponents of the petition will argue that recipients only 
uh, excuse me, that it represents only the smallest minority within the LGB movement, and indeed only 3,000 people have signed the petition so far. Well, it's kind of normal. The counterpetition has more than double the number of supporters. But if the LGBT movement has taught us anything, it's that the minority views are important and, des- and deserve attention. And it says the, the petition cites four issues and justly, uh, that justify a call for the parting of ways. And it says the vilification and harassment of women and gay and lesbian individuals who openly express disagreement with the trans ideology. Yeah, see, I see this as two movements, too. Then it says the infringement of the rights of individuals, particularly women, to perform normal everyday activities in traditional safe spaces based on sex. That's interesting as well. The appropriation and rewriting of gay and lesbian history and culture, most notably attempting to recast the majority gay white men who participated in the Stonewall riots as transgender. And this is most troubling by persuading parents and health professionals to diagnose children as young as four as transgender. There we go. Despite considerable research that shows that more than 90% of children who express, quote, gender dysphoria, in other words, confusion, at a young age grow out of it by adolescence, and in most cases, grow up to be well-adjusted gay men and women. See, that's, that's it's, you ever heard uh, Gays Against Groomers? Have you heard of this organization? Guys on One American News a lot. Nope, I haven't heard of them. Okay, well, I shall pursue more of this. We're almost, uh, how much more of this? Gays Against about. Groomers. Groomers. Groomers, in other words, people that uh, that groom, you know. Oh, yeah, groomers are the one that... Yeah. yeah, they're the ones that prepare those young people in the school and mm-hmm. wherever they can get a hold of them. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So in other words, they're grooming. You know, grooming used to be a good word, which meant uh, you're being groomed to be CEO of the company. In other words, you're you're working your way up to the top. You're doing the right things. You're being groomed for it. Now, grooming means something entirely different. So the word "gay" has come up to mean something different. It used to mean happy. Now it means homosexual. Uh, groomer used to be, you know, like I say, it was, it was a decent word. Now it's, it, it means you're, you're, you're basically committing sexual assault on a young person. Then it says, what's going on here? Now, this is the article again. Isn't LG, this is from, oh, I forgot to mention where this is from. I'm sorry. This is from Intellectual Takeout, one of my favorite um, sources of, of, of uh, articles. We do these a lot. Then it says, the, is, then the article says, isn't LGBT supposed to be all about tolerance, acceptance, affirmation, love, and rainbows? LGB and transgender people stand together because they are both victimized minorities. But what happens when one victimized minority feels victimized by the other? That's an interesting question. Says this ambivalence within the LGBT community expresses a deeper problem with the transgender movement and social, cultural, and political aims. We need to understand that transgenderism operates on more than one level, not only as a psychosocial phenomenon, but as an ideology. So this is the key. Okay, so if if people are are doing this because they want to identify uh, and live as the opposite sex, that's psychosocial. That's individual choice. We've talked about that. That's why we separate this out as cosmetic uh, elective surgery and drugs. But as an ideology, this is the part I don't understand. How did this get to be a political ideology? What are its origins and what is what is the purpose? Where, where, Where do they want to go with this? Maybe it's in the article here. This is transgender. The Democrats is looking for uh-huh. a political increase in their political base, and just like they did with the LGB community, and they're favorable to them, speak up for them, and so on and so on. So I'm opening doors uh-huh. because they look at them as a political base, which includes donations and votes. 
Yeah, and in doing so, they have to say that Republicans hate transgenders because the, the Democrats say Republicans hate whatever group they want to co-opt. You know, and so, but Republicans, you know, we listen. I had Republicans and conservatives and Christians, you know, on my site, and we talked about this. I posted a couple of transgender, you know, question postings, and everybody came back universally. It, if you're an adult, it's your choice. Uh, if you're a child, you get left alone. And your political ideology, keep it to yourself, <laughs> you know, or I don't want anything to do with it. And so conservatives, American firsters, you know, the folks that, that uh, responded, you know, on my various posts about this all came back within those three things. You know, keep your ideology. We reject it. Uh, leave the kids alone. And whatever you want to do is fine for you. Just don't try and impose it on the rest of us. That's not hate. That's actually tolerance, <laughs> you know. That's and, and, uh, of the of the of the individual, but it's a rejection of the ideology. Just like I reject Marxism, I can re- I can reject the transgender ideology, uh, ideology, political ideology. Yeah. Okay. If they do it. <laughs> so let me uh, just do a couple more bits here, and then uh, we'll switch topic. Well, let me actually actually let's switch a little bit right now. So one of the things I was thinking of this morning before the show is adding a new category. You know how we have all these racial uh, categories that uh, they're in uh, all the government forms and all the business forms? Well, I was thinking, what if we added the category of normal? <laughs> what if you identify as normal? So in other words, when people say, do you identify as you know, LGBT? Do you identify as uh, you know, uh, black American? Do you identify as whatever? I want to add the category of normal. And so I'm going to write a Substack article on this. Maybe today, sometimes I got a list. I got 30 articles to write on Substack. Um, of titles that I want to do. So what if we invented a new classification and called it normal? So how would you define normal? And I'm doing this for a very specific reason. This is an ideological, um, basically, defense and uh, offensive move against, like, the transgender ideology. So, so what is, what is it, how would you describe a normal person? So if you wanted to identify as normal, maybe it wouldn't be on government forms or anything else like that, but we need to re- bring back the word normal. Okay, so a normal person, well, I'm going to throw it out to you. So without me saying anything, if you wanted to identify as normal, what, what kind of qualities would, would, uh, would come about? Pianchi, what do you think? I don't know. I, can, I, I understand the reason why couldn't they have what, what we call a racial classification, and that's mm-hmm. to keep track of the inroads that certain uh, ethnic groups, phenotypes are making in society in different mm-hmm. areas. And uh, those uh, organizations that champion for those societies, they request that. That's uh, how members of their society is tracked so mm-hmm. that they can keep track. They see, they receive data showing uh, that progress is not being made in certain areas, then uh, they try to address that. For instance, like school admissions, right? Uh, profession. So the, in some cases, it comes in pretty handy. Well, that makes sense. Um, but I don't agree with with racial classifications. Yeah, you know, if, and I agree with the caller that I had several years ago, that uh, if we can get rid of all these racial classifications, if people want to study things based on race, if they have a sociological interest in it, that's one thing. 
But if they're, but if it's, if it's classified for power or money or all the different reasons, the political reasons to divide people by race, no, I don't think so. Because I think the Democrats are still the party of segregation. They want to segregate in colleges. They want to segregate in medical schools now. They want to segregate dorms, graduations. You know, pretty soon they're going to be starting to segregate companies again. In fact, that was one of the jokes that someone said uh, when they're talking about a, a segregated medical school. And, and, and someone wrote in, yeah, you're going to segregate the water fountains and the bathrooms too? You know, I mean, this is, this is where they're headed. So the Democrats have always been the party of segregation. So if you take away the means of identifying, you know, people by, by the ways that, are, that the Democrats want to segregate people, then hopefully we'll get rid of segregation. I mean, it's time we did. So I don't like racial classifications, uh, unlike I say, unless it's for a particular study. But even then, what, what, what kind of if – you, if you want to study, you know, white Americans or black Americans or Asian Americans, what are you going to get? You're going to get a huge, huge range of people, huge range. You're going to get rich, you're going to get poor, you're going to get talented, you're going to get untalented, you're going to get professional, you're going to get blue collar, you're going to get welfare bums, you're going to get everything in every group. So what's the point of identifying? Let me ask that question. What's the point of identifying by race? I know you're talking about for, for, for to analyze groups are doing, but what if we didn't group people that way? What if we group people by class, like Marx does, by economic status, lower class, middle class, upper class? Blue collar, white well, nobody, collar. When you're looking at somebody, like racial profiling, yes, mm-hmm. racial profiling, Information that leads up to that or the result of that is necessary in order to address if such things is going on. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would like to see a time when we, you know, I don't know if we've always had racial classifications. I'd be curious about that. But I think it's the difference between, you know, it's like when you see a white person, do you see the entire white race in that white person? Or do you just see a person who's white? Yeah, you, the uh, classification has been going on as long as you've had a U.S. census. Well, I, mean, I think to, when you uh, change the census, that, <laughs> that's one of the things we had in our bill was to remove all racial classifications in the census. I mean, if you didn't know, yeah, what they're gonna do that. well, I'm not worried about what they think they're going to do or not do. That's not the, if I was worried about you know, what, uh, you know, what's going on now, I mean, they say that my line and I promo – I don't worry about what has happened. I worry about what can happen. And we can take these racial classifications out because I don't, I think they're obsolete at this point. I think they're dangerous and they, they like allow for segregation. Population. Uh-huh. You need to know who's in the prisons. And if you see a disproportionate number, then you have to ask well, what's going on. So it has its benefits. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, it would be, we, we have to analyze this further because Prison population is, is, is a different thing. It's, it's already a segregated group in society because you're segregating people that have broken the law and are too dangerous to be on the streets, you know, out free. So that's already a captive population. Um, and if you, want to, if you want to racially divide within that captive population, because they're already under government control anyway, that's different. I can, I can see an allowance for that. But as general in society – Having people identify by race on census forms or, or corporate forms or college forms, anything like that, I would say no. I would take all those things off. You know, let's, let's be the color we talked about. Mm-hmm. Certain illnesses like diabetes, heart disease, obesity, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, malnutrition, pre-birth, uh, not birth, uh, you know, you know, when a woman dies, the baby dies in birth, all those things is a category by uh, the race of the victim. Yes, yeah, so, I don't, I don't see, uh, 
Okay, like I say, if you're doing it for medical statistical purposes, but if you're doing it for a political advantage, it's, it's different. See, I would group those people, I would group the, the diabetics, not by black diabetics, white diabetics, Asian diabetics. I'd, I'd group them diabetics, maybe by age, income, or something else like that. But it, it's only one factor. It's, it seems like it, but in this country, it seems like it's the only factor. Let me get back to normal. Let me, because uh, I'll, I'll tell you what I was thinking um, of, of identifying, and I think this would be really important for this country. If we identify as normal, normal would be heterosexual. That's normal. Normal would be an American citizen. That's normal. Uh, in this country, we have immigrants. I'm not, I'm not saying anything against immigrants or permanent residents. What I'm saying is that identifying as normal, normal people believe that marriage is between a man and a woman. Normal people would believe in God. You know, and so it's just these things I'm just pulling together as a way to combat the special interests. I say, well, I've got my own special interests. I identify as normal. That's my special interest. I'm just playing with the idea because I think it would be interesting um, to talk about that. Well, see, you know, and I might start asking people when they come on the show, well, do you identify as normal? Well, yeah, I do. Okay. What does that mean? You know, in other words, uh, normal people go to work. They're not on welfare. If you identify as normal, you know, you probably um, have a family or try to, <laughs> you know, uh, you probably were married at some point. That would be normal. You know, so all these different criteria for what is normal. Normal people, I don't take vacations. Normal people generally do not riot. That would not be a characteristic of a normal person. So all these different things. I, well, I don't, I'm, I'm going to work because I'm going to tell you uh-huh. why. It work because I've seen grading in uh, public school grading, and they would have better than expected and expected when they look at, for instance, black students. Mm-hmm. And you have uh, scores. You have percentiles. 10 percentiles, 15 percentiles, 20, and they would make that, if, it's, if they score on 20 percentile, they would say it's better than expected. Well, why would, uh, what's going on there? So, no, in many cases, that's needed. And same thing with uh, doctors. If you say the blacks make up 12, 13 percent of the population, why come only four uh, percent of the nation's doctors are black? So no, you need those those uh, the data to come in that way in order to look and address problems and see why they exist. Yeah, well, here's the problem. <laughs> the, the, you know, again, uh, we need to get see, to a place in this country. If you didn't have that, if right? you didn't have that, then they would get lost. Uh, if there's a problem that exists, and it may be some outside of the norm, as you want to call it, that's caused that problem, then it never would be addressed. You never would see well, that this is going on with this particular ethnic group, given the history of the country. So how do they handle it in other countries? Uh, I know you've talked about Ghana a bunch of times. Do, uh, what's, the, what's the white population of Ghana? Everybody in Ghana is black. Okay. <laughs> So this is actually a great example then. So if everybody in Ghana is black, how do they divide the population? How do they classify the population there? They divide the population along the, the ethnic groups. Awe, Ashanti, Fulani. Is there a, a class system where one ethnic group is above another ethnic group? Well, under normal circumstances, that's going to occur anyway, even within the groups themselves. Okay, just curious. So there's a hierarchy. 
it's like in India where they have the caste system. You know, the, on the bottom, you got the, the untouchables, and the top, you got the Brahmins. I think that's how it goes. And that's been yeah, around yeah, for the Dalis, they have been called untouchables, they black. Huh. The Brahmins is uh, Aryan like uh, Kamala Harris. Oh, so so the Brahmins are whiter than the than the Untouchables in India? I, I didn't know that. Brahmins are whiter than the Dalis. It's Dalit, D A L D A L I T S. Dalis, Dalis. Huh. Okay. Well, let me ask you another question. Uh, it's something that one of my more controversial statements on the show that it, it's, it occurred to me this morning that, uh, you know, the people coming to the United States and into Europe, you know, people of color are racing into, you know, countries where basically white people made the country free and prosperous. And that to me is a form of racism to assume that just, be, you know, it's, it's almost like it's like reparations. It's like the, the world and the world being told by, by Democrats and by leftists and by Marxists that, yes, if you're a person of color, you should come to the United States. You know, even though it was started by prosperous white people, rather th- or, or white people that created a free and prosperous society in a country, rather than improving your own country. So I've well, often many wondered. People contribute to, uh-huh. and many people of different ethnic groups and hues contribute to making the United States prosperous. It wasn't just whites. No, it wasn't. But um, it seems to me, you know, you as a person who identifies as a white person easy. because I am, <laughs> what's that? I say it shouldn't be said because you mislead people, and that's one of the arguments is that uh, the only place you could say something like that would be like, for instance, in Nigeria, where 99% of the people are black. But in the United States, you have people of different hues and ethnicities that has contributed to make the country as great as it is. I mean, that's is there Is there a comparable country in Africa with um, – it wouldn't have to be exactly the same, and the rights wouldn't have to be the same. But in other words, with a constitution, with something like a Bill of Rights, you know, with a, a philosophy of individual rights and individual achievement, is, is there a country with a similar philosophical base to say, you know, the, the, the British have, Magna Carta, you know, philosophy? They all have constitutions, but as far as Bill of Rights and so on, no, it's not aligned along those particular type of principles. You'd be surprised when countries go about making adjustments to their constitution, they always use, many times they use the U.S. constitution as a guide. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting you say that because I know the, uh, the U.N. Uh, Declaration of Human Rights, which is like the anti-constitution. It's like the anti-Bill of Rights. It, it turns all rights to group, you know, rights given by, by the world government as opposed to individual rights, you know, that come directly from God uh, by our birth, by our birthright. You know, so we are born with these rights and they can't be taken away by government. The UN has totally reversed that and saying the only rights you have are group rights that we give you. And so um, that's where a lot of countries take, you know, when I was yeah. working on the Australian Bill of Rights, a lot of countries, that is their, that is their charter. They think that, that, uh, that the UN Declaration of Human Rights is what they should, they, they should base their rights on. And it's simply not true because those aren't human, those aren't individual rights. Those are group, uh, their rights at all. You know, it's it's like a group control. It's actually yeah, a doctor UN charter, <clears throat> UN, UN charter of human rights don't mean anything unless somebody oh. won't accept it. The United right. States have a U.S. constitution, but we can't accept no a conflicting, parallel 
the doctrine like that, and then I really wouldn't really want to accept it anyway. There's some things in it that don't make it. Actually, some things in it that you see has filtered its way into American society as it has to do with transgenders and uh, children uh, being able to have these uh, non-parental consent procedures done to them. Like uh, Joe Biden was supposed, uh, Major Joe Biden made the statement, uh, as I read, I don't know if it came from him directly, about deputizing teachers, whereas they don't have to uh, consult with parents when discussing things with their child. Hmm. He's doing that under Title IX, I think he said. Well, Title IX was public schools, not private schools. Right. Well, Title IX was designed to. In fact, I just, I just watched the re, uh, the Riley Gaines interview on with Dan Ball on One American News. Uh, Title IX was designed so that women's sports would exist because colleges and maybe high schools probably as well uh, were putting all the money into men's sports and boys' sports, and there was no money for for women's sports, which was discriminatory. So Title IX comes along and says it is a civil rights violation. I believe that's how it works. I haven't read it for, for a while. It says it's a civil rights violation if you do not, um, you know, at least have, you know, you don't have to spend exactly the same amount, but you have to spend something. You, if you have a men's football team, you have to have a women's football team. If you have a men's lacrosse team, you've got to have a women's team. If you have a men's, men's swim team, you have to have a women's swim team. And that made sense because it's discriminatory to not put any money into women's sports. That's crazy. Well, yeah, then they took it to Title One, which is free and reduced lunch. And then you have some uh, school district that would penalize a child if he came to school with a paper bag lunch that was prepared at home. So a lot of these ideas start off with good ideas and end up mm-hmm. being very, very callously ran, like I just got through describing. Yeah, yeah, okay. I've got some uh, comments here of a very active uh, texter who uh, says one comment here is I've actually listened to a West African woman brag about owning slaves. Is slavery still going on? Or has that been outlawed? That's part of their society. If that's what their society take on, then that's their business. Okay. Hmm. I wish we had Josie here. I'd I'd be very curious about uh, uh, Central and South uh, South American countries. You know, in terms of, uh, of prosperity. Well, here's my contention, though. This is what I was leading to with my thoughts that uh, why is everybody coming to the United States and, and uh, Europe, you know, for a better life rather than creating their own better life or, or having, you know, coming to the United you. States? Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, you're not right supposed back. to import, immigrate to the United States for a better life. You immigrate to the U.S. in order to make the U.S. better. Yeah. Uh, immigration That's a really good way not- to put it. Right is yeah. a privilege. Yeah. Now that's a really good way to put it. In fact, I, I'm going I'm to steal that from you. That you don't come here for a better life. You come here to make America better. You know that's and that's that's very true. Um, that's you know and that's not what's happening. And so uh, what I was saying earlier is that people come here for a better life that we have to pay for. And that to me was the problem. I'm not here to pay for somebody else's better life. You're, but we're here to provide the opportunity to make a better life. And that's what the individual rights all about. But uh, yeah. It's uh, it yes, makes a lot of people. Uh-huh. People come here to uh, increase their wealth, whereas they would send that money back home to create things that they, under normal circumstances, would not create 
thereby creating an elite class above those that stay there. Yeah, that's part of the problem, though. Is uh, you know, the, anytime well, class systems are a problem. But here's here's a question I, I, I would like to ask. You know, is there any country in the world, given you know the the laws that we had back at our founding in the 1700s, that couldn't be free and prosperous themselves? You know, I think El Salvador is probably the the most recent example that's trying to do that. They're trying to bring about you know. I'm gonna check. I'm gonna put a big note to myself. Do a, like a case study on El Salvador. But Josie's talked about them. She's familiar, and I've seen specialists with the president of El Salvador. It's a small, it's a small country, and I've, I said Donald Trump should go there with a whole bunch of investment and, uh, you know, bring the, you know, between freedom and, and uh, prosperity, between individual rights and uh, economic opportunity, you can make any country prosperous. And so this is, everybody's, you know, everybody comes to the United States, not only will lose our prosperity because everybody's here who, who's here to, you know, take a better life. Not not get one, but take one. Um, but there's no reason these other countries can't have a way up. There's nothing unique, really, um, about the United States from other countries. You know, we all have the same land. We've got the same air. We've got the same water. You know, we've got a we've got a bunch of different things here. But what we don't have, there's nothing you know genetically superior about American citizens. There isn't. We're the same as everybody else. Now, we believe this is a special place because of our ideology and our culture as, you know, the land of the free, home of the brave, individual rights, you know, economic opportunity. But there's nothing inherently different uh, in terms of what any other country has, you know, land resources, air, water, people, you know, we're genetically pretty much the same. So what makes this country different? It's the ideology. It's the belief in freedom, well, belief in individual rights thing, and economic opportunity. Yeah, you know, countries have natural resources uh-huh. that they should be able to monetize. What I mean by monetize is you have X number of uh, tons of copper in the ground, uh-huh. haven't been extracted. Well, a country should be able to print money against that copper. Now that's local currency and use their local currency to develop and build infrastructure along the many different categories of which they can build it. Now, here's where the kicker comes in. Mm-hmm. That copper, if it had to be sold on the open market, the prices is set by what's called the LME, which is the London Monetary Exchange, which uh-huh. is going back to Western countries of quote-unquote white countries that set the value of it. And they're, in fact, where the problem lies. So what you eventually have tried to be done is that country create their own, uh, I guess you could say EU, like the African Union, for instance, of ECOWAS, Economic mm-hmm. Community of West African States, of SADAC, when you're right. talking about the Sahara and Southern. So that's what they have tried to do, and you know, sooner or later they will get it right. But see, in order to do this, you got to have an educated populace, a skillful populace, in order to be able to carry out those projects because local currency is used to pay workers in local dollars, not U.S. dollars, but in local dollars that can be spent locally. And if you're going to be spending it locally, 
Uh, they have to have the things that they're going to look for. They're going to be looking for corn. They're going to be looking for automobiles. They're going to be looking for clothes. So that has to be all uh, cared for. If not, it just won't work completely. Yeah, I wonder about, because I know you mentioned this a couple of times, basing, say, a, a currency on, on a copper reserve. But the country makes money when they sell that copper. So if you're basing a currency on a commodity like copper and you're printing money against it, that means that money is redeemable in copper. And if the government sells that copper to be more prosperous, because that's a natural resource, that's what you generally do with them if you want to make money, that's reducing the stock of copper. It's also reducing the currency if you're basing it on that copper. So I don't know if and the same thing would be true here with the gold standard. If we have to mine gold to cover every dollar, you know, that's going to be a lot of gold. I know that's what Fort Knox is for, but you know, that's still a lot of gold. So whereas if you just keep the currency at a certain level, say we don't have a, you know, like the monetary supply. So the reason we have inflation is because the government keeps printing money because it allows them to make the, the national debt look less. Because if you have $30 trillion and you have multiple trillions, you know, in circulation, there's a, I don't know how it works exactly, but the debt is not as big a portion of the economy. Or well, the United interest, States you know, does things in a trick way. You never could yeah. have enough gold to amount gold mm-hmm. value at $2,000 an ounce mm-hmm. to equate to your unfunded liabilities, which is a hundred and some odd trillion dollars, maybe like a hundred and eighty trillion. It just ain't going to happen. But countries, if you borrow money for the IMF or the World Bank, you default on the loan. Well, the collateral that you put up is your natural resource. Right. And there will be some sort of arrangement where uh, that natural resource will be extracted and sold and, uh, you know, made available to pay off whatever your obligations are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I've been rethinking the whole idea of a gold standard here based on, you know, what we're, we're talking about. Then I think as long as you maintain the currency at a stable level, you know, or or if the currency increases, it, it increases at the rate of an you know, what's the, uh, um, I'm not sure how you do it. I guess at the rate of, of economic growth. So in other words, if you want to print more money, then the economy has to have grown by a percentage to to so that the the dollar value I guess would, would stay the same. If the economy if you if the economy grows and the dollar value is is rigidly maintained at one level, then those dollars, which I think is a good thing though, those dollars will become worth more. Because as the country gains in wealth, each dollar, if the dollars are fixed, there's only so many dollars out there, uh, those dollars would be worth more. Uh, and the price of goods actually will drop because the value of the dollar is greater. So that, that's well, the, dollar, the amount of currency you got here depends on your population. If your population increased 25%, you have to increase more currency in order so people in that increased population number will have currency to behold. Not so, necessarily. Because it, because yeah. of the value. Well, all right. Let's say you double your population. Population doubles in thirty years of a country. If, you, if wow. your population say is a hundred million, and mm-hmm. everybody has got ten dollars, mm-hmm. well, if you increase your population to two hundred million, everybody ain't gonna have ten dollars. So you gotta increase your, you gotta print more money. Unless that ten dollars now buys twenty dollars worth of goods. So if you if you that increase make your population. No you only no, got ten million people. You only got ten million people with ten dollars. 
there's no more physical ten dollars. It's only enough for everyone in that ten million to have a ten dollar bill. Now, if you have babies and they become adults, they're gonna want a ten dollar bill too. So you gotta increase the quantity of ten dollar bills. No, but if if a, if a ten dollar bill, you know, is pays for what a $20 bill used to pay for. Yeah, you can increase the $10 bills, but you'd be reducing the $20 bills. In other words, as the what value the of money grows, hold on a second, as the value of, of the money grows, as the dollar becomes more valuable, you don't need as many dollars to buy stuff. So what you might want to do is print lower denominations or mint coins. You know? And so, you, you might, so the printing of money is not the problem. It's the printing of money beyond the economy that's the problem. So if, if you have more population, more wealth, more economic growth, sure, you can print money. That, that makes sense because you want to keep up with the population growth. But if you're printing money in excess of that, and they've been printing trillions of dollars in our economy. Well, we don't have trillions of people. We've got 330 million. Under another country, okay. the country Pick has one. a population of 20,000 people. And everybody in that country got $10. And those people uh, have babies. Now the population double that. Well, you're going to have to print more $10 bills so each person will have the availability of a $10 bill. If not, they're going to be chasing other people's $10 bills, and that's going to increase the value of it because somebody's trying to get it. Somebody wants it. So to maintain the value, you just print more money where everybody can have a $10 bill, accessible to a $10 bill, should I say. Of course, you know things will happen where some person is going to be horrible, but uh, that's the principle of it right there. Yeah. No, and I said that, but the key thing you said was to maintain the value. So as long as you're maintaining the value, then printing more dollars isn't a problem. It's when you print more dollars and the value goes down because of inflation. So as long as you're printing money uh, at a zero inflation rate, that makes sense. So the more dollars are circulating, so more people can spend those dollars, and they can be spent faster. I mean, the velocity of money, it's called. So the more money changes hands, the better off it is. So that makes sense. Now, if you don't have the natural resources to back that money, mm-hmm. say you only got $10 million worth of copper in the ground, and you got 100,000 people, and everybody's got a $10 bill. Mm-hmm. Well, if you increase your population by 200,000, well, you're going to have to have an extra $100,000, $10 bill. And to do that, you got to make sure that it should be that your minerals in the ground can back an additional, those additional $10 bills. Now, if they can't, then you either have to look for another medium. Maybe you go to, to a, a lunar. So now you got copper and a lunar. So as long as you got something to back up that money, you're okay. Mm-hmm. But when you get to a point where you don't have something to back it up, like the United States is, the United States back there up on the, the gross domestic product. When that product goes down in value, the money loses its value. Hmm. Yeah, I still say as long as you're maintaining the value uh, of the money and you're not creating inflation, you can print as much as you want. Um, but that's, you know, because the, 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 the value of the, of the dollars, and if the value of the dollars does change, you know, you can print more of lower denominations. In other words, if $20 buys what $50 used to buy, 
uh, then you can print more 20s and fewer 50s. But if you have if you have inflation, then you got to print more. You know, then then uh, you got to take money out of the economy. So there are times when you have to reduce the money supply. Like now, we need to reduce the amount of dollars in circulation, not increase them. We need to reduce the interest rates to nothing, and we need to stop all the spending and borrowing out of Congress. That's what's needed. And they're doing just the opposite. They're doing exactly the wrong thing. <laughs> you got to get a lot of. I don't know. Do you get live chat when you? Uh, have the show? Because a lot of comments here from one person. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, I don't have a whole lot more for this week. It's been kind of interesting. There's, there's uh, obviously more stuff to cover. So I'm thinking of, of playing an interview or, or stopping earlier. I don't know quite what I want to do. We've covered a lot of stuff. Let me play an interview. I think this might be a good time to take a break and, and do something a little different. It's going to run us a few minutes over time, but we do that so much anyway. You know, I'll get over it. Um, any last comments for this week, Pianchi? Monetary theory that you've got. No, I just gonna say United States uh, United States economy is is contentious and very complicated. Uh, its dollar is based on its, the U.S. good faith, and it's probably one of the safest places to keep money compared to other places. And that's why people around the world like to keep it here in these banks in the United States. Yeah. Uh, I know there's a lot of small banks going out, but something will come along to replace them. That's just the, ing- the, the genius of, you know, American people. Uh, of course, not, never enough, but all in all, there's always somebody to step, step forward with an innovation to solve the problems that uh, we have on hand. Mm-hmm. So we, we just, just need to be to open yeah, we just need to be open to those innovations, and uh, you know, and, and like I say, everything. Uh, my comment on the economy is everything is, is being done wrong. Interest rates should go to zero. Borrowing drop ridiculously below the the national debt ceiling. I, I like our constitutional amendment to stop Congress from borrowing money. That alone will be unparalleled growth. And the money supply, you know, if you want to print more dollars, just make sure it's not uh, going to cause inflation. And then uh, some more people have more dollars, and hopefully the economy will improve. All right, let me, let me set up this interview here. This, is, this one's kind of fun. This is WEBY. This is when I used to work. Uh, my first job in radio, my first full-time job. I had I'd done uh, like a part-time thing at a, at a station uh, in Bakersfield, California, briefly, uh, right before uh, 9-11, which is kind of interesting. Uh, and then circumstances <laughs> kept me out of radio for another 16 years. That's a story I'll tell someday, but not today. Anyway, so um, I'm very familiar with my California experience with the University of California, Berkeley, because I used to live within five to ten miles of it, depending on where I lived, uh, in the East Bay, which is opposite from San Francisco. And so I'm not sure how I met this person, but Jose Diaz was head of the Republican, the the University of California at Berkeley College Republicans. And this is the the Mia Yiannopoulos time, no, Yana, what's his name? Uh, Milo, excuse me, Milo Yiannopoulos. Uh, and Ann Coulter when she was going around speaking. I haven't heard from her for years. Anyway, it was just fascinating to talk to a, a college Republican on the most liberal uh, of, of campuses in the country. And so it, uh, it should be very interesting um, to play this for you now. Anyway, so any reference to WBY is old. <laughs> any reference to a phone number other than 215-383-3832, uh, that's, that's the old WBY number. So I'm going to play this, see what you all think. I uh, had a couple of calls. And uh, I thought this was quite interesting. This will take us a few minutes of overtime, but I think it's worth it. And uh, I'll do all our, our final sign-off stuff when I come back. So here it is, and here we go. 
Yeah, baby. 623-1330 is the number to call in. Outside our area code, 850-623-1330. This is Greg Penglis. It's 8.06 in the morning. This is the Action Radio Hour, and we have a special guest, which I would like to introduce at this time. He formerly served with the U.S. Coast Guard. He is a student in the most liberal college campus in the country. Uh, where he was in the Berkeley riots has yet to be determined, but we will find out shortly. He is here representing the Berkeley College Republicans. Let's have a warm welcome for Mr. Jose Diaz. Hey, Jose. Hey, Greg. Thanks for getting up early. How are you doing? I'm oh, doing fine. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, I thought it was interesting to to get you, especially because of where you are, you know, in this and the and the whole college problem we have with PC movements and everything else like that. Are you president of the Berkeley College Republicans, or what's your position? I am. Now? Okay, I good. am president of the Berkeley College Republicans. Excellent. I have a contact for you who's probably going to be calling in, Charlotte Davis from the University of West Florida College Republicans, also, and they had a big convention this weekend. So lots of things going on. It's a bigger organization than I thought. This is nationwide, right? This is, absolutely. Are you associated with the, the national group? Do they help you out? What do they do for you? Yeah, we are we are in frequent talks with the uh with the with national organization. Also our state uh our state Republican uh, organization as well. So uh we talk, they they lend a hand, they offer assistance, uh they, they help us through some of these uh some of these really really, really um, uh, disgusting uh, times in terms of uh, the, the liberal left, the intolerant left. <laughs> well, you have special challenges that a lot of folks don't have. So let's get right to the, the Milo event, which is probably uh, the worst thing that's happened to, to Berkeley and free speech and everything else. Uh, you got a great statement on your website, so I want to encourage folks to go to the, the Berkeley College Republican website. And I just want to read this, this statement here. It says, the free speech movement is dead. Last night, the Berkeley College Republicans' constitutional right to free speech was silenced by criminals and thugs seeking to cancel Milo Yiannopoulos' tour. Their success is a defeat for civilized society and the free exchange of ideas on college campuses across America. We would like to thank the University of California Police Department and the University Administration for doing all they could to ensure the safety of everyone involved. It is tragic that the birthplace of the free speech movement is also its final resting place. What do you think? Your comments. Yeah, I'd say you know that night was a slap in the face for those who, for those who who felt or feel strongly about free speech and feel strongly about uh, the the fact that you're able to attend a university such as uh, UC Berkeley and uh, and be exposed to a broad spectrum of beliefs, opinions, uh, ideas, and and certainly for what we saw February first, what took place. Uh, was a complete uh, slap in the face that ran ran counter to what we expected we were going to you know, accomplish or see through at, uh, at UC Berkeley. These we saw we saw individuals come in and basically resort to the most extreme measures to shut down an individual that they didn't they they had no uh, no intentions on even listening for here. They didn't say. And you know, and and we put a lot of work in this event uh, in terms of the planning stages with the administration, talking to security, um, everything. Uh, many, many, many hours reporting to this event to uh, bring us bring someone to Cal that uh, that was you know in in in, in many in many ways was going to challenge the uh, the status quo, the consensus of ideas here. And uh, you know, and like I said, it's it just very, it's very frustrating and uh, very very uh, disheartening to see what. What happened uh, that that night take you know take place at a U, at a at a U.S. Uh, academic institution? We're talking we're talking uh, you know explosive devices, fires, 
violence uh, uh, perpetrated against individuals there, uh, outside the venue. Uh, it, it, very, very sad, very and a very, uh, uh, very frustrating thing to see that night. Oh, I saw the news reports. I was watching this poor mm-hmm. woman who got pepper sprayed, and she was being yeah. interviewed. You know, did you know yeah. her at all, or, or was that um, one of the Berkeley College Republicans, or was she just someone in support? She was just someone there uh, from the Bay Area coming out of support. And, uh, yeah, absolutely, she's one of many individuals who who uh, who, who were attacked that, that night. She was, uh, she was pepper sprayed uh, by uh, an individual wearing all black. And, again, she's one of many. We had a route following... Uh, shortly after that event to come and uh, speak at one of our uh, general meetings of the semester and to give her a personal account and to basically to, um, and, and it, was, it was a pleasure to have her. I think her name was Kiara Robles. Uh-huh. She came out, she uh, she offered her support and uh, basically uh, told us to continue, you know, to continue to remain steadfast and to continue to stand for free speech. And that's exactly what we're doing. And we're, we're not going to waver. We're going to continue pressing forward. And uh, irrespective of the the, uh, the resistance that we've received as a, as a student organization there at Cal. Wow. Did you have any idea that this was coming, that the protesters were going to be shutting, not only shutting down the event, but uh, coming in with their black shirts and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, basically terrorizing the area? Well, we certainly expected a degree of, of resistance and, uh, and, and certainly in protest. And, you know, people are... We, and, We've been asked this question many times. We support uh, the right to protest. That's that's perfectly fine. Uh, however, where where the line I believe is is drawn is when that protest uh, turns into physical violence and uh, an assault and the destruction of property, and that's that's what we saw that night. And again, we did everything in our ability to try to mitigate uh, or prevent. Uh, you know, these yeah, but you weren't expecting a riot. I mean, you weren't expecting, no. <laughs> you know, this this kind of. I mean, you you basically held an event. You had Milo, who was mm-hmm. supposed to come speak. Um, hopefully, maybe you have some contact information for Milo. You can give me off the air because I'd like to get him on my show as well. But uh, you know, I mean, yeah, protesting is fine, but protesting is carrying mm-hmm. signs and informing people and handing out leaflets and going on media and talking about mm-hmm. it. That's protesting. Okay. Right. This wasn't protesting. This was violence. And it's interesting. I was trying to get some video uh, from the old brown shirt riots back in Nazi Germany, you know, when they would do basically the same thing. And the Molotov cocktails would go against the windows and the property would be destroyed. And, and Kristallnacht, when the brown shirts were destroying all the Jewish businesses, mm-hmm. you know, and all these things. And then you look at this Antifa, this anti-fascist group. Do they not see the irony of what they're doing? Do they not see that they're becoming exactly what they think they're protesting against? They are the brown shirts have become the black shirts. The anti-fascists are the fascists. The irony is, is ridiculous here. Do they have any clue what they're doing, or are they totally oblivious to all this, blinded by their political correctness? That's very interesting you mentioned that, and, and, that, and that is that's true. I'm on a roll. Let me, once I get going. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they call themselves anti, anti-fascists. You know, that, that term is just, it, it's, it's, it's almost a, a pretty interesting way in which they, they choose to refer themselves as. Like, the, the anti-fascists to uh, to go against this, uh, what they believe this uh, this neo-Nazi fascist movement to be taking place, certainly, and, and to be emboldened by by uh, the the new administ- uh, administration that we have, and, and and you know, and that's certainly it, it is very ironic. We see these individuals, and I've seen them time and time again, uh, to uh, 
uh, to, to basically to, to push their agenda. And there's an organization they they refer to uh, see by any means necessary, BAM, if you will. That's right out of the I, Communist Manifesto. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the end. No, seriously, it's Karl Marx. The ends justify the means. And I, right. I, I bet they. I bet they all study. Did you have to study the Communist Manifesto in school? I bet you it was assigned by somebody. Oh yes. It, it, and, that, and again, one of my one of my many frustrations uh, <sighs> being at being at uh, the institution I'm attending, being at UC Berkeley, uh, it's. It, you're, you're, there's no shortage of, uh, of Marxist uh, rhetoric <laughs> or literature there. We're going to get into uh, this, yeah, and then we're going to take a break in a little bit here. But, uh, yeah, go finish your thought on this, and then I have, uh, uh, we have Clarence just waiting on hold, and we'll probably take him after the break. But, yeah, so, so any, any more on the, on the riot, or just let's, let's cover this completely before we take a break. Sure, yeah, the riot itself, that's, and again, um, the, some of the things that took place tonight completely unprecedented. Uh, when we started hearing explosive uh, explosives going off outside and smoke bombs and uh, things being shot at the the building itself, the structure, uh, it, it completely taken us took us by surprise. And we and again the the individual, the small group of individuals inside the venue, which included myself and some of the other planners and security personnel. Um, Where were you? Inside, Where were you specifically? Our, Where were you specifically when this happened? I was inside the venue where the the hall where where he was going to come and speak. Milo okay. was in the building, and it was probably about probably around ten of us that was inside the building. Okay. Uh, ten of us, and plus the the security personnel that we had on staff that night. Wow. Uh, we had no idea what was going to take place. Uh, we again, when we started hearing these explosive devices go off and starting to see fires being lit outside and things being shot at the building. Uh, we are all stunned and 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 very very concerned for somebody knew. Tonight. Somebody yep. knew this was planned long in advance. It's like you know the the uh, Benghazi, what they called a uh, some uprising because of a video, which is nonsense. Because I checked, there's only about a hundred views of that video before the uh, the attack took place. Somebody knew. Somebody planned this. This has been going on for a while. Have there been arrests? Has this group been looked into? Is the FBI looking to them as the domestic terrorist group? What's going on? The, to my knowledge, there that I think there was only one arrest, and that took place the following day. <sighs> this exactly, this whole thing went off. Uh, people were injured, punched, uh, beaten down to a bloody, you know, pool. Uh, uh, pepper sprayed. Things were just over. I mean, like tens of thousands of dollars of, of property damage. Wow. And, uh, and and again, to our dismay, no, no uh, real, uh, really arrest, uh, other than the one that I think I heard take place or that took place the following day. But uh, yeah, it's again very frustrating, and uh, and, uh, and 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 uh, on our end to see our administration, see our see our see our security force be relegated to passivists, and and essentially that uh, and and. Where these where these group of individuals were able to just basically to go out and do whatever they wish, shut down this event, destroy destroy and assault people, destroy property, assault people without any without any pushback from uh, from our uh, our uh, our uh, police. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. I want to know why not and what happened and whether the city you know, is, is looking into this or, or they, were, they were backing the protesters. It's 8.17 in the morning. This is Greg Penglis with my very special guest, Jose Diaz, who is president of the Berkeley uh, College of Republicans on the most liberal campus in the country, the University of California, Berkeley. It's 8.18. We'll be right back. We were meant to live. 
It's easy to get us going here. 8.21 in the morning. Um, my special guest, I'm Greg Penglis, with my special guest, Mr. Jose Diaz, who is the president of the Berkeley uh, College Republicans at the most liberal campus in the world, the University of California, Berkeley. I'm going to bring Clarence on. Uh, Clarence, I just want to uh, request that you have a direct question, and we'll get, uh, get that right to our guests, and then uh, I'll probably let you go. So, Clarence, what, uh, what's on your mind this morning? Hey, man, look, I, I got... I have opinions too about what's going on. I don't need uh, to be controlled. I, I call it. I got. I got something where I'm going with with what's happening in California. What's happening with this fake news? What's happening with uh, this bait that the uh, the news media? Okay, I need you related. I need you related to the Berkeley College Republicans, though. Yeah, yeah, but here's the deal. It, 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 this media is a great white shark media, and what you do with a great white shark, you put out bait, and the shark has a president. And the bait is the fake news. For instance, uh, they talk about Russia all the time, what's happening in Berkeley. Look at them talk about Russia. Bill Clinton and Hillary and Nancy Roosevelt made more money off of Russia than anybody in the last 20, 30 years. Now, look, not, but they come along and they all the fake news about Trump. And, Clarence, and, and so Clarence, you know it's fake because Clarence, of what uh, Bill and Hillary have done Clarence, with the money with Russia. Clarence, do you have a question? And the same for- thing with Berkeley. Justify the means. Obama. Obama. Justify the means. That's that's to the end. That's what Obama and them are doing. That's why he stayed in Washington. See, I bring more to the table than just a a talking point. This is what Obama doing. They pay people to to start uh, riots and and stuff at Berkeley and then Trump on rallies and everything. Now they're suing Trump about the same thing. See, all this stuff tied together. You got to tie this stuff together, man. You just can't have one point. Okay. No, I appreciate it. Thanks, Clarence. It's a great uh, comment. Actually, Clarence raised two, raised two points, the media and also the um, whether people were paid to riot. Uh, do you have comments on that? Let's start with the media, how they treated you, Jose. Well, the the media, uh, again, shortly uh, after that, uh, what took place uh, that night, uh, they came in from all, all uh, from all walks. And we, we, we took, we, we, we tried to field as many requests uh, that we received with, uh, about, about what's in place relating to the Milo event, to free speech, and, and again, we uh, we made it very clear, you know, that free speech. There's no there's it's, there's no contingencies on, on on free speech. Where I think we're all entitled as citizens to yeah. to be able to express our our views, irrespective of of what the, what the majority might think uh, around us. And certainly at UC Berkeley, we are the uh, we know as a, as, a, as the Republican, the one Republican uh, organization there, where we're the minority, political minority in a, in a you know in an environment overwhelmingly dominated by uh, progressivism, and and again, and that's for for all the more reason why um, you know things were uh, things went off the way they went off, and we were criticized by the media, by the media, by some in the media, by our, even our own campus newspaper. Who were they saying about uh, you? I mean, we've heard we've heard uh, sentiment expressed. Uh, sentiment said basically said, "What well, what could we have expected?" I mean, this look at the individual we were. Yeah, how dare you express your views exactly. different to what we say? You know, you should have known better. Why did you bring a conservative mm-hmm. on campus? You know, to disrupt our political thought. We were so happy in our in our bubble. Why did you break it? Who do you think you are? How am I doing? <laughs> exactly, and that's that's spot on. And these and many of these individuals, they they, they you live in their liberal echo chamber, yep. and they 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 will they will say that they condemn violence and et cetera, et cetera. But they will also throw in that caveat. But 
guess what? I mean, you what what more could you have expected to come out of this situation? By right, it's such an inflammatory uh, individual to come speak at uh, at, uh, at you know at this uh, university, as if uh, we as if the the outcome what took place was uh, in, in some sense. Um, uh, it's your fault, aren't you? Aren't they blaming you for this? Sure, we yeah. we, we absolutely, and then that and that again uh, points to some of the biases that we we it's so better so blatant in in, in our media. Now I'm not going to say I'm not going to use a broad stroke uh, brush here. Say yeah. every every individual that we, we every individual we spoke with from the media uh, shared that hmm. shared that uh, that that opinion or that uh, that perspective, but many did. Uh, and, and again, <clears throat> we it, it does it for us as an organization. It only emboldens us. It only pushes. It only challenges us to to uh, to continue the fight, pushing forward, especially the support that we have received following the event. And that and that is that is probably the most unsung uh, uh, aspect of this whole event here. Yeah, who we came received, out supporting you? I'm curious. Uh, individuals from all walks of life, from all over the country. So people who Those disagree with you too. Uh, there, there are many who who have who have shared uh, very colorful uh, comments about you know about who we are and what we stand for. But there are many around the country who have came out in support, uh, whether that's offering um, whether that's opening up their pocketbooks, offering how they can financially support us and getting our message out there, oh, that's great. or just being there, just being and just expressing their their own personal support for what we're doing and thanking us for what we're doing. And, it, and, and it's those individuals, those individuals who who are from, say, Ohio, somewhere in the middle of Ohio or somewhere uh, somewhere out back east or up in the northwest or, or southeast that, uh, you know, that choose to take time out of the day to find us, to look us up, to message us, and to, to basically offer that uh uh, those words of encouragement, and those, those those are the voices that we're here. That's what we're fighting for. That's what we're trying to. We're yeah. sitting here. We're trying to do is to is to uh, challenge challenge the, uh, uh, the you know, this liberal uh, uh, bubble that we live in, and to and to offer a different view, a conservative voice. You're, you're kind of like the the political Alamo. Nothing against those who served and, and died at the the real Alamo, but I mean, you guys are on the front lines. So you're behind. You know, enemy lines, so to speak. There, we're and, in the belly of the beast. You are <laughs> right there, which is why I want to talk to you. So, let's—I want to talk about your story a bit, and then about the Berkeley College Republicans. So, you were sure. in the Coast Guard before college, right? Yes, I was in the Coast Guard. I was, um, in, you know, I was in the Coast Guard for quite a bit of years. I uh, my job was, you know, directly in uh, maritime law enforcement, uh, counter narcotics, and alien migration interdiction. Oh, I got to talk so. to you about illegal aliens. Then. <laughs> we, we, we. Did, I want to have you on a, a, a several times more. We, we obviously there's so much more to talk about than we can do in this hour. So how'd you end up uh, at UC Berkeley from the Coast Guard? I have to hear this story. Well, you know, I, I was a. Uh, I grew up in a, in a in a in a pretty rough area. Okay. Uh, I'd say you know I was I was one who you know unfortunately you know didn't have much growing up, but I knew that I wanted to get something in life, and uh, and I believed in that uh, that. That all the day, it's you know the work. Uh, you, I mean, if you put in the work, there's opportunity here. Yes. I mean, it's it's and it's, it's how hard and how how much or to what length are you willing to go and try to. to I spent uh, over to, 30 years to trying to get a radio show, so I know I understand. <laughs> I understand working for a dream. Yeah, absolutely, and I believe that. Yeah. And and I knew this. I knew the you know the service when I was 18 years old. I knew the service was something I wanted to do. I wanted to serve my country. Right. Uh, I wanted to uh, try to better my lot by going out 
uh, and basically experiencing the world and and um, and, uh, and and just having that pride uh, at the end of the day, knowing that I've I've uh, you know I've done something for my country. And that's what I want. And, and the military provided that for me. The U.S. Coast Guard when I when I joined, uh, they sent me off to boot camp. And they sent me down to Mississippi. Never been to the South ever in my life. Okay. <laughs> and they sent they sent me they sent me down to Mississippi, and I, I was there I was stationed on a ship. Where are you from and, originally? Uh, I grew up about thirty five minutes from Chicago. Okay. Yep. So you know I uh, you know and that was the beginning of my Coast Guard journey of uh, you know of, of of being being right in the, in the thick of it in terms of the uh, alien migration. Uh, that was that the illegal alien migration that's, that's taking place down in uh, Florida. As a matter of fact, the strait between Cuba and and uh, Florida there, where you know we I spent many many months and out there patrolling that that 90 mile stretch, mm-hmm. uh, intercepting uh, illegal. And when was this? Uh, what, what were the years? I'm curious. Was this during the Obama administration? This was yes, absolutely. This was back I'd say probably about a. Uh, about uh, four or five years ago. Did they have guidelines for how you treat illegal aliens? Because they had this, all kinds of programs to bring illegal aliens into the country that had to be overturned uh, during the Trump administration. So what, what were the, the basic orders that you can tell me? Well, I mean, to, you know, being, being on the, being, uh, you know, on the front lines, we, I mean, certainly we went once, once we, uh, once we, we intercept, you know, a boat and we took, we, you know, we take in 10 or 15 or so, uh, illegal uh, 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 illegal aliens. Uh, we we process them and we'd eventually have to repatriate them back to Cuba. Yeah, uh, so Cuba Cuba's cases, a sticky situation because Cubans are trying to escape this really horrible place. And I think they have the policy: if the Cubans make it to dry land, they can stay. But if you catch sure. them, they had to go back. That just seems kind of you know it should be one or the other. Either they can stay or they 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 come here or they can't. It's just it's kind of a, a thing I still have to learn about from the Cuban community. Right, absolutely, and I yeah. think they've. I think just recently they've uh, they've they've made a change on that policy, okay. where I don't think it no longer it, it, it's no longer uh, uh, it no longer stands. I think they rescinded that, but that has that has for many many years have has been the been basically been the policy that dictated how we how we handled uh, uh, illegal immigrants coming yeah. from traveling from Cuba. Yeah, I want to do that. None, uh, Probably we're going to cover this in a different show, but uh, yeah, sure. sum up on that, and then I want to get back to uh, to Berkeley and what, what it's like there on campus. At uh, at, at Berkeley, yeah. So let's, yeah, so we'll hold our, our Coast Guard because okay. it's fascinating chat there. Yeah. But uh, so here you are. Just, I mean, Berkeley's a good college. I mean, it's hard to get into. There's a lot of people that that want to go there. So tell us what Berkeley's like. Well, Berkeley One is a it's a place. You first, the first day you step in, you step on that campus. You notice, you look around, you, you know, and you and if you're not, you know, if you're not already, uh, if you're not a if you're not a liberal, you're not a progressive. Uh, if you if you are, if you do consider yourself a conservative and you hold true to uh, behind many of you know these conservative ideals, uh, many that you know, which the Republican Party uh, that. Uh, spouses, then you, you're gonna know that. Well, I thought of it. I, I, this is this is gonna, this is a place like no other. I, certainly, I've been all over the country. Yeah, I have. Uh, well, you're law I, enforcement, I, Coast Guard coming into, <laughs> you know, to. I can I can imagine the class discussion. So, do you have a mm-hmm. do you have a story for us of of you know your first encounters with liberal students in class? 
Well, I'd say um, I'd say sitting in class, routine. One of my main or primary points of uh, contention or frustration at, at UC Berkeley is uh, when we're debating, when we're talking, we're debating uh, social issues, or we're talking about policies. Uh, it's 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 normally a debate of which progressive, which liberal policy is best. <laughs> oh, that's that's it. That's the range. We we have the we have the liberal socialist Marxist policies, and that's the only thing <laughs> that's the only thing they'll consider. Right, and I you know, and I'm not I'm not one to shy shy away from from expressing my views. So I, I routinely uh, oh yeah, no I'm kidding. Routinely, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I make myself the target by opening my my mouth and uh, and being the voice of uh say the uh the the uh, conservative uh, uh spectrum of things and you know and i i've i've had mixed reactions everything from being you know dismissed you know essentially dismissed by the uh by my professor uh shooting my 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 opinion or my perspective down my uh on a, on a particular issue or having having just my peers there Look at me in this sort of bewildered. Uh, they don't understand. They have no <laughs> clue. You're, you're offering a perspective exactly. that I mean, they, you know, the irony is. I mean, we're going to take a break in a second here, but uh, mm-hmm. the irony is that you're 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 emitting all this hate speech to them, and they think they have every right to to crush it. You know, free speech to them is when people agree with them. And so right. hate speech is anything that they don't agree with. And therefore, you know, when they talk about free speech, free speech is within their academic range, which is liberal to Marxist. And if you do anything outside, that doesn't count as free speech because you're, you're a hater. You know, you're, you're this, this horrible person. So it's fascinating how this works. Anyway, it's 834. We're going to take a break right now. I'm with uh, Jose Diaz, uh, college president of the Berkeley College Republicans, and we'll be uh, right back. joined by Jose Diaz, who is the uh, president of the Berkeley College Republicans. It's 8.38 in the morning. Uh, just a quick update on the storm front. It's passing north of us right now. And so it looks like the, the worst of the weather is just a little bit north of Pensacola, Milton, at this time. So you're probably getting it in the, the northern part, uh, but in the actual city of Pensacola and Milton, it's raining, but probably not uh, too bad. Jose, how you doing? Yes. All right, let's get I'm going to, just fine. Good. Okay, so let's get uh, Pete on the line. Pete, you had a question? Uh, sort of a, a, a question and a, a partial comment. Okay. Mr. Jose, thank you very much for calling in. I know California time is awful early, isn't it? <laughs> awful early. Chickens aren't even up. Uh, thank my, you. <laughs> my sister in the 60s, late 60s, went to uh, Berkeley, and uh, there was a knock on the door. She was babysitting me. I was a little brat. And uh, there was a knock on the door, and there was this bearded, long-haired guy at the door, and... Uh, and all of a sudden, my sister said, oh, okay. And they talked a little bit. They were friends. And she said, get dressed. My name's Pete. So she said, get dressed, Pete. We're going somewhere. Snuck Dad's car out. He was over in Vietnam. Nobody drove the convertible Chevrolet. But uh, we snuck it out. We went to A&W Root Beer. Uh, my sister drove. He didn't have any money. And uh, before they left, he had a little Ludwig drum set. And he Pete? did a little beat. And I said, can wow, we, his name was Can we get James. right to it? Sir? Can we get right to our, our can we cut to the chase here? Yeah, real quick. Well, <laughs> come to find out, that guy on that date was Jim Morrison. Oh, wow. And uh, so and I have the, he said, I have a friend named uh, John that can really play drums. And that was John Dimsmore because he did a little beat on my little basic drum kit, you know. And uh, so I still have the A&W uh, mug and all that. And when he died, uh, she went to Paris to the uh, for the funeral and all that. But I kind of double dated John uh, uh Jim Morrison, you know, now, the doors. How old were you at this time? Uh, I was uh, probably seven, eight. 
do you remember the 60s in Berkeley? Do you have any insights uh, that yeah, you can share? Yeah, it was weird. You know, they were all hippies, <laughs> flower power. Uh, we would go there, and uh, I love leather. And I used to make leather, and I really made a killing. Every time I'd go, my sister would give me a, a, a list, and I would make these little leather belts and leather little things just to <laughs> hang on with tassels. Made a killing back then. Yeah. Do you have a question for Jose? Yes, yeah, so real quick. Mr. Yeah. Jose, why didn't the conservative Republicans do something? I know it's always too late. Next time we'll do this, the next time, the next time. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, conservative Republican Christians don't do things like what they did. Like when there's meetings in town here, when it's the Democrats or the uh, uh, Libertarians, I mean, it takes extra crew to come in to clean up and extra dumpsters and all that. When the Christian Republicans leave, the young, you know, family value people, conservative Republicans, they have a skeleton crew to clean up, you know, and uh, they, they, we follow the law. But, uh, see, this is a feather in their cap what they got away with, you know, kind of like, yeah. you know, the, the the different places that they, you know, burn and don't loot and hands up and all that, you know. And uh, But I know Republicans don't cause trouble, and I know there's really mm-hmm. nothing we can do, and the police say— well, wait a minute. Uh, let, let's think about what we can do, because I'm sure, I mean, the Berkeley College Republicans, you know, have something they can do. And, you know, you guys might want to start your own newspaper, you know, or do something to get the word out. What, mm-hmm. uh, what can you do? I mean, after the act, though. Well, yeah, that's true. Well, I'm going to talk about that, too, because I'm going to talk about Janet Napolitano, who used to be head of Homeland Security, couldn't even secure her own campus. But we'll get into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jose, what do you think about uh, differences between you know, Republican protests, Democrat protests and free speech? You know, what happened to it? Where'd it go? Exactly. Well, uh, you know, I'd like to thank you. Thank, I thank the caller for, uh, for calling and, and sharing sharing that and asking that question. I, I, I think that's a big question that we, we need to uh, take a look at. I mean, what can we do? And we're, you know, uh, following shortly after this, uh, the aftermath of all this, again, um, we and 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 and, and receiving the, the immense amount of support that we receive from fellow Republicans or conservatives or just, or even... Yeah, even, who is backing uh, even, you? You've got Hoover Institute right down there in Stanford. I mean, you've got a lot of Republican organizations. What are they doing for absolutely. you? There there have been, again, there have been groups that have that have uh, said, hey, you know, we support what you're doing. Thank you for what you're doing. If there's anything we can do uh, to basically to let, let us know how we can help, uh, help this facilitate your organization, your message out there. And, yeah. and, uh, and what is the message we, and what, what are your goals? Our goals are basically one, uh, in this, you know, after, uh, well, going leading up to this, uh, to February, February 1st, uh, event, uh, was to, to be, to be basically that beacon of free speech, the torchbearer, if you will. We noticed as, a, as Republicans here at, uh, at UC Berkeley that, uh, we didn't feel that that was the case. Uh, we didn't feel that, uh, we didn't feel that a, a, a broad range of ideas were, were were allowed to be expressed there, and that's that's why we went and we started we started inviting uh, and and, uh, and, all, and having individuals from outside campus come over. We and it doesn't end with Milo. We have a uh, Ann Coulter, uh, critically acclaimed author. Was she and, before uh, or after Milo? She's coming uh, April twenty seventh. Oh, great! Uh, are you Coulter. prepared for this? We are we're, we're gearing we're gearing up for it. Okay. And has <laughs> so the our, campus police been alerted? And are they going to actually allow this to go forward and not sit back and watch? We're in talks right now with the administration and the uh, UC uh, police department in terms of establishing, or hopefully, I'm hoping that they've they've made some institutional reform uh, into their policies in terms of how they are going to state uh, to ensure that you know that an event. 
that uh, you know we we try to host is it, it actually happens and it's not uh, shut down when you know by uh, by by, an, by basically by an angry mob of uh, of writers. And, and some of them are from Oakland. You know, they were not yeah. local people. Right. Yeah. So yeah. what we can do, we're, we're starting a newspaper, a uh, conservative uh, newspaper there. To put it online, I want to be able to use it as a source. Yes. Online will be our first our first way in which we're going to uh, kick it off and uh, launch it. So that that's that's one aspect. And that right there will uh, hopefully will have uh, will begin to, you know, uh, uh, increase the – the uh the our megaphone if you will yeah what's it called so we can uh, look it up uh the newspaper we haven't we're still nailing down uh uh key uh concepts of of the newspaper but we're in the planning stages right now i got a slogan for you pardon i got any slogan for you leaders of the new free speech movement the berkeley college republicans i like it yeah (laughs) you can use it i just made it up but yeah leaders of the new free speech movement there you go I like it. Thanks. Thanks for that. Oh, no problem. We'll, we'll, we'll I do ideas. That's what better. I do. I'm flooded. <laughs> my my mind. I wake up in the morning with like ten ideas. It's it's my curse. <laughs> I can't help it. They just keep, and stuff just pops into my head all the time. I have like original ADHD. Yeah. Anyway, so go ahead. Um, tell me more yeah, about right. it, and we and, shall. You know, uh, I say I say so. The newspaper. We have a newspaper going. We're now we're certainly networking with other fellow Republicans or conservatives across the uh, the Bay Area, California, and even across the the country. I think Republicans, I think or conservatives if you will, just to use a more broad term, uh, we gotta we gotta look out for one another. We gotta we gotta be there. When we see something uh happening to an, uh, another, you know, uh, a organization, a group, I think we gotta take notice and we gotta take action. Yep. Uh, cause certainly the you know the, the left, the intolerant left, the, there's no there's no shortage of uh, of organizing in in the sense that, you know, these individuals will come together and will go out and we'll try and, and we'll hear and ex- we'll try to shut something down if they disagree with it. We see that we saw that just uh, a few weeks ago in the Trump march, a march for Trump. We had uh, out here in the, at Berkeley, and what we saw take place there, we had a small group of uh, of Trump supporters uh, basically march march over to a to a park there at at, uh, at Berkeley, and the whole way there they were greeted with a massive crowd of anti anti-fascist uh social marxist or uh, uh individuals dressed in all black assaulting and hitting and and attacking them their whole way what's this all black the uniform whole... thing i mean the, don't they understand they're the new brown shirts i, I think i had an article in the works you know from brown shirts to black shirts i mean don't yeah. they have a clue you know, and that's, and that's again that, that that underscores irony. This whole situation wow. uh, to 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 throw on this garb to become this this street fighter, if you will, that uh, that uh, that 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 this violent street fighter that uh, with the with the focus of going out and and uh, attacking or using force against those individuals you find to be um, you find disagreement yeah, with. Yeah, violence is opinion. okay if, if you're disagreement with because yeah. they broadly they generalize. Wow. They look at someone and say, you know what, you must be, uh, or if you're if you're not a a, a a vocal supporter, if you look like you're an empathizer with with uh, with the uh, other side of the spectrum, you're you're then it's fair game to attack you. To to spit at you, to throw things at you, to to go out and assault you, and, and all of these uh, all of these, these sorts of ways. And I've seen it. I've I've had to come to the aid of of my, of my friends because they were physically attacked and by these by these uh, leftist uh, 
left this individual. Yeah, it's, and, it's, it's, it's pathetic. It's, it's something that should not be acceptable. And to see the passive uh, response from our administration, from our Berkeley, even Berkeley Police Department, yeah, uh, it, it's just disgusting. It's, and I, and I, I again. We're not deterred, but we're very much frustrated at seeing seeing what uh, seeing um, seeing this sort of a uh, passive response from our uh, you know from our administration. Yeah. What do we do as a conservative group if we're not if we're not? I'll tell you what you support. do. What what you do is you get a whole lot more conservatives onto the campus next time. And I'm going to see if I can mm-hmm. look into getting some group help for you. We're going to have to take our last break now. It's 8:48. Um, we have Charlotte Davis on the line. She's with the University of West Florida College Republicans. She'll be talking to you right after we come back. This is Greg Penglis with Jose Diaz. 8:48 in the morning. We'll be right back. I'm going to get right to this because it is now 8:51, and we have on the line. Jose Diaz, the president of the Berkeley College Republicans, and I want to bring on Charlotte Davis to join the conversation. Charlotte, go ahead. Um, good morning, guys. How are you? Having fun. Great. So, um, hey, Jose, I am Charlotte Davis. I'm obviously with the University of West Florida College Republicans here in Pensacola. Um, just more of a comment right now, but I know you guys are familiar, or you are familiar with Ariana Rowland. She's currently running for the California State Board. Right, exactly. Right. So, I I have a connection with her. Me and her were trying to plan Milo to come out to our campus. Um, it didn't work out as well as we would like it to just because we are a smaller campus. But um, my question for you is how are you guys looking at over the next year, because I know elections are coming up, how are you guys over the next year looking to turn California red? I know it's going to be definitely a lot harder of a job than uh, Florida is, but that's mm-hmm. definitely our, our goal as the College Republican National Committee is to turn all states red. So what's you guys' uh, plan right. at this point? Well, uh, one, I'd like to, you know, thank, thanks for, again, uh, nice meeting you. Uh, That's a very interesting question. Uh, I folks from uh, where we, where we questioned, uh, similar to, to that one you just uh, raised. One, the, the, as Republicans in California, we got to, it's our, we're, it's our job to help uh, spread the message, to recruit uh, younger folks, to take on to and groom them for these next to be future leaders of the of the state of, uh, of the Republican Party in our in our state. Without uh, without without that link between uh, those that are in uh, the leadership positions now and those that are up and coming, uh, I think you're going to I think uh, you're you're not setting yourself up for success. So my my whole goal and passion is to is to essentially uh, increase our our voice. And to and to basically uh, bring in individuals, show them our message, because and by and large, our message is not is not being uh, uh, transmitted to you know to to uh, to the to, to those younger folks that are that are up and coming. And if we can be there at the doorstep to show to show you know younger uh, you know to show freshmen, to show you know our peers the message, our goal, knocking on doors, the goal, and getting getting involved in uh, political events. Are able to go out and hand, uh, hand out information and to and to engage uh, younger folks. And w- without that, we're we're we're, set, we're again, like I said, we're not a uh, we're, uh, we're we're going to fall short. So that's that's what I've challenged our membership to do at the Berkeley College Republicans. That's what I've challenged myself to do. It's a, it's a daily thing that I I uh, do uh, or I live by every single day. When I come across someone, whether it's you know walking through campus and and someone's just curious. 
I never uh, hesitate to engage them yeah. and uh, and have that conversation with them because the more the more we're able to engage others and to show them our to show them our message, the more and and the persuade minds, the bigger and the more successful I think we we are able we're going to be uh, we're going to be down the road. Hey Jose, can you yeah. can you do you need help from other college Republican campuses? Should they contact you? Because uh, Charlotte knows a lot of folks out here. Uh, is there a way to to help you out with especially with the Ann Coulter visit? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if uh, if you know, we we have our website. There are we also have a. Uh, Why don't you give that out? Uh, our website is www.berkeleycollegerepublicans.com. We are in the process of re- revamping it, but as of right now, they're able to uh, they can make in contact with that. We have a Facebook page as well, and they can message our uh, they can message us. And again, we're pretty responsive. We respond typically within five minutes. We have a great social media person that's on top of it. And anything that that uh, that uh, you know uh, that an outside organization feels that they can they can offer a way to help us uh, support us, we we would be more than gracious to to, to uh, have it. Um, whether again, whether that's uh, showing uh, just being there to show to express words of encouragement or to financially support us, we're more than uh, we're more than happy and we'd be more than uh, gracious to. Yeah. To uh, to receive anything that we can get from uh, from other other public organizations, but yeah, the Ann Coulter event is going to be an interesting event. There's already talks of shutting it down. Similar, we see the similar trend that we saw leading up to the Milo event, and we hope again, we hope to have that. Uh, 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 we hope to engage our administration and to challenge them to make necessary reforms. So this event can happen, and yeah. free speech is safeguarded at uh, at UC Berkeley. Charlotte, any words of uh, advice? Um. As far as I can I can say, I know UC Berkeley is definitely a much harder time. Um, it's more of just a word of encouragement. We've sat here watching you over the last year uh, take on your liberal administration and just keep it up. You're doing a great job no matter what anyone tells Thank you. Thank you. Um, we, we've definitely brought you up, I want to say, at almost every single one of our meetings um, whenever we faced a little bit of pushback from our administration um, where we were almost shut down. It was continuously brought up about UC Berkeley and um, how you guys have continued to fight back against your liberal administration. We wouldn't uh, be giving up either just as easily. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And, you know, and one, one uh, to quickly just add one thing. Uh, we have, uh, we love engaging outside uh, Republican uh, campus, Republican organizations. We have, uh, you know, I, I think over the course of uh, well, since the Milo event, we've we have, uh, you know, video Skype, uh, other Republican organizations, such as, you know, UM there in, uh, in uh, Florida, the, the Republican chapter there, a few on the East Coast. And uh, we love opening up that discourse or that line of communication, whether it's with an, uh, another CR chapter or whether it's someone uh, uh, someone representing the national uh, 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 group. Yeah, how connected are you with the other organizations around the country? Because you are like the vanguard out there, and I figure the more college Republican campuses that can connect with you and give you help, especially with these events, uh, the better off you're going to be and get the message out. Yeah, well, we're trying. We're we're actively trying to increase in, increase that uh, that line of communication with with, with with anyone. Anyone is willing to engage us. We're more than willing to be there. To uh, to offer whether it's offer our own personal insights on things yeah. or whether it's to help tr- provide a different uh, a view on how we can try to uh, tackle the issue that we see going okay. on. And, Give uh, your contact information because we're just about out of time. 
Uh, yeah, contact information, yeah. My, my, my personal email is, uh, well, school email there is uh, jds11 at berkeley.edu. And if there's any questions, you can direct email to Radio, dedicated to fixing everything. Okay, we're back live here. Um, it's Friday. Everybody's gone home. <laughs> it's just me here right now. Um, so all our folks have left live chat, and Pianchi's gone. And uh, it's just this was a fascinating interview. Um, I still I dug up some of my old contact information for uh, Jose Diaz. Let's see if I can track him down. This was six years ago. Again, like I said, so this would have been April third um, of twenty seventeen. And so, again, just to recap what was happening at that time, uh, in case you don't remember, but uh, the, the riots after the uh, Milo Yiannopoulos uh, speech, uh, they destroyed hundreds of thousands of dollars of property at Berkeley. It went crazy. And I'm not sure how I got in contact with Jose. I probably just, I think I probably, knowing me, I probably just emailed the Berkeley College Republicans and said, hey, anybody want to talk to me? <laughs> you know, and Jose goes, yeah, I'll talk to you. Okay, fine, great. So we set the whole thing up. But uh, that interview would have been at 8 o'clock in the morning. Uh, that was my action radio hour at WEBY 8 to 9. And so I would have uh, hit eight o'clock, would have been six o'clock his time. Because fortunately, we're central time here. In this portion of Florida, we're central time. So my West Coast guests are only two hours early as opposed to the East Coast, which would be like the Eastern time, which would be three hours earlier. So a lot was happening, but the same problems, same problems exist today as existed then. Uh, they're just worse. You know, look at Riley Gaines, who got uh, locked up in a room and, and, you know, struck in the head and a bunch of other things um, for simply trying to uh, compete against other women uh, in swimming as opposed to. Uh, um, Will Thomas, you know, the dude, you know, uh, deep voice. And who's the other one? Uh, uh, who's the, that, that soccer player man with the really deep voice who's, uh, you know, trying to, you know, identify as a woman. It's, it's fascinating. The trans thing, like I say, the individuals who want to do this, great, no problem. Um, but uh, the ideology, the trans, the political ideology thing, I have to investigate more uh, and find out what's going on. But anyway, as far as free speech goes, you know, the, 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 the cool revelation that came out of that talk was that free speech to a leftist is, you know, liberal on the right, you know, and Marxist on the left. And that is the entire range of their free speech. You know, to them, the conservative is the liberal. So from liberal to Marxist, that's it. Anything outside of, uh, well, there's nothing further to the left than the Marxist. They're the, the absolute totalitarian dictatorial left. That's where you get the, the you know, Nazis, communists, uh, fascists, uh, and all the other ists, you know, that are there. So, but the, the liberals are a little, you know, to them, that's like the, the extreme right wing is the liberal, <laughs> you know, but that was fascinating too. Anyway, um, a lot going on for next week. I've got uh, topics. I've got different things we'll be covering this week. We covered a lot with the, uh, uh, with, you know, trans surgery and drugs going to cosmetic and elective uh, CBDCs, the, the, the central bank digital currencies being classified as uh, blatantly unconstitutional for the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh amendments. Uh, when something else we discovered this week that was uh, interesting too. Um, I'll, I'll think of, yeah, I'll probably think about it. Look at my, my show notes from this week. Do, 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 do. I think we covered the disarmament of the federal government. You know, oh yeah, the second amendment in reverse. That was interesting too. It's been a busy week. So we'll be back Monday, new show, new legislation, uh, hopefully new connections, you know, bigger, better, more public figures coming to the show and hopefully we'll, you know, announce us to the rest of the world and that's what we'll see happen. All right. Uh, played everything I could possibly want to play. So let me just give the websites. You're listening to blogtalkradio.com slash citizen action. Our legislative site is writeyourlaws.com, W-R-I-T-E-Y-O-U-R-L-A-W-S. Uh, and we also have um, my articles at gregpanglis.substack.com. And we have the um, 
The last one is our contribution sites, givesendgo.com slash action radio and paypal.com slash paypalme slash action radio. See you all Monday, 7 a.m. Central Time. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.